Hey, Lee. Yeah, Jake? Remember when we were on set and I, and I, I would get really nervous? Yeah, 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 I remember. Can we do the thing we always did every day, the thing that made me feel safe? Is it gonna help you be uh, less nervous? Yeah. Yeah, sure, we could do it. All right. Thanks, man. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash contrarianprime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Ovnio for Julio. That's O V N I O. Now, time for the podcast. Right, I am recording for Contrarian's Corner for Titanic. <laughs> this is how we start 2021. I mean, is there any better way? It's we're eight days into this year. My God, what a week it has been! What a month this week has been, Julio. <laughs> it's just the the uh, you know, like when you drink from a bottle and then just a little bit of your spit goes back into the bottle backwash yes it's the backwash of 2020 it'll be gone soon enough the uh carpathia will be here soon enough to rescue us survivors of 2020 (laughs) that is my terrible segue into today tonight's this afternoon's this morning whenever you may be listening this episode of the contrarians where we're right and you're wrong my name is Alex, and I am joined, as always, by my fearless co-host and friend, Julio. Julio, uh, we have talked about several times through different episodes of when we conceptualized this podcast, hey, this would be a good movie to do. I know Pulp Fiction is one of them, Secret Life of Walter Mitty, and I can't. there was one notoriously rotten movie that, we always, that we've covered. I can't remember what it was. But when we talked about the idea for this podcast, we would say, hey, th- you know, it'd be fun to do this, you know, make fun of it. Or, hey, it'd be fun to do this and make it sound like it's good. And I'm not really too sure there's any bigger or more, more prolific uh, movie uh, than what we're covering here today. Although it is not one of the 100% movies that we've done, and it's not even in the high 90s, <laughs> it is still 
I would think no, we did Avengers Endgame. So but it has to be in the upper echelon of the biggest movies we've ever covered and that is Titanic. It's it's 100% in your heart. Absolutely. Uh the 1997 romance drama at 89%, so it just barely cracks what we typically look for here on the Contrarians, but my god. Do you think that rating, do you think it was like in the 90s before it got re-released and then that kind of like dunked its numbers a little bit? I feel like that's true because I feel like because we worked together when it was re-released and I feel like it was higher than that. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, they're not going to make a separate Rotten Tomatoes entry for Titanic and Titanic 3D. Uh, I mean, they should. (laughs) They should because the poster for Titanic 3D is insulting and the poster (laughs) for Titanic is incredible. But that is here nor there. But, yeah, I think it was taken down a few pegs. If your research and your quotes is anything like mine with just general information, it's just an absolute deluge, an embarrassment of riches in terms of how much information is out there. So I'm curious, were, were the Rotten Tomatoes quotes, were they plentiful? Uh, yes, and they were mixed. That was the thing. Like for, And I guess, I don't know how this app organizes them, but it felt like for the longest time, because there's a lot of them, I was just scrolling through a lot of 3D quotes, and uh, and I was trying to mix it up and get some from the original release uh, eventually i found some but uh yeah i really honestly i wish they were separate because it's a different uh i mean forget about the 3d the, the 3d is kind of whatever but uh just the idea that this movie was uh received a certain way when it came out and then it was reevaluated sometimes by you know <laughs> critics that had already put on their quotes and run tomatoes uh you know, all these years later, uh, I I just wish that they there was they were keeping those those takes separate, and I'd be surprised, you know, because maybe the original would be at like ninety nine percent, and the re release would be at fifty percent. Received is definitely a way to describe this movie when it was released. Another way to describe it would be conquered the world and embedded <laughs> itself in pop culture for all of history, basically. Um, <laughs> Yeah, they are different movies, to be fair, in in terms of uh, there was a scene in the, th- the 3D re-release that was edited from the original. So you can make the distinction that they're two separate movies. Really? Um, yeah, very, very minute detail. The, one of the scenes um, at night, the sky is changed or something. It, it was some like anal retentive thing James Cameron clung on to from the original release and just changed it for the release but oh it was not like they they reinserted uh, that scene where billy zane is brushing his teeth or something and then <laughs> yeah it's not like jack came up from the water at the end a la jason <laughs> in the first friday the 13th and pulled rose back into the water <laughs> so if you couldn't tell by that long laborious introduction and I already named the movie, so you can tell. We're here today to talk about Titanic, and this is The Contrarians. If you're a returning listener, we do greatly appreciate it, and oh boy, you're in for quite an episode. If you're a first-time listener, which when you cover a, a gargantuan, a, a giant, a titan of the industry like Titanic, it's always a good chance you're going to attract uh, someone for the first time. So if this is your first time listening, welcome and thank you. Uh, to our returning listeners, give us a moment here while we describe our gimmick to our newbies. Here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. That's the uh, battle cry that we have. 
we find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times known as Certified Fresh. I think that's the TM. We typically shoot for uh, about 90% and above. Sometimes we'll dip down to the mid-80s. Like I said, with Titanic, 89% fits right in that range. And with movies like that, what we do is uh, maybe present an argument for why it's a bit overrated, why you should take it down a peg. Uh, and on the other side of that coin, on our you know, um, alternating episodes, we find a movie that is rotten, uh, one of those nasty green splotches, typically 30% and below. And we'll make a case for maybe why the, the critics got it wrong. And it's a, it's a fine film to behold. Um, if you want to know how we really feel about these movies, Julio, where can they find that out? Oh, you got to stick around to the second half of the show, aptly named Real Talk. And that's where, where we tell you how we really feel. It's as simple as that, except sometimes it's complicated because... You know, if you're like me and it's a movie like Titanic, then you find yourself with, with mixed feelings about it. Um, hopefully, Alex will help me sort through those in real talk. Tensions sometimes run hot. I, I had mentioned Avengers Endgame earlier, and I think that's our longest runtime on an episode. And the reason for that is the second half is just a lot of me and Julio yelling at each other. <laughs> <laughs> Going back and forth about it. But being that Titanic is... A certified fresh film, yes. This first portion of the podcast, we will be making lights and describing uh, maybe why the critics got it wrong. So, with that being said, it is certified fresh, Julio. So, then, now, forever, what were the critics saying about this movie? <laughs> well, like I told you, I, I grabbed uh, a smattering of quotes, both rotten and fresh, uh, that apply to the movie, but some of them are from... The original release, some of them are from the 3D re-release. So uh, I'll start with the fresh quotes on this segment, starting with Ed Gibbs from the Sun-Herald, Australia, who says, A modern-day take on the classic Hollywood romance, delivered with the kind of panache, long-thought lost to the sands of time, that proves essentially timeless. Panache. We are the romantic here in The Contrarians, Alex. Uh, Correct. Is that why you like this movie? Is it is it classic Hollywood romance? Uh, without delving too deep into real talk, I think that's part of it. I mean, it paints that picture. It kind of kills the illusion when you remind yourself at the end of the movie, wait, these people knew each other for like 36 <laughs> hours at the max. More importantly, uh, nothing says classic Hollywood romance like hundreds of people dying at sea. <laughs> <laughs> Screaming for their children and loved ones. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Jeffrey Overstreet from Looking Closer says the spectacle of the ship will enchant you and the tragedy of the victims will haunt you for many days after you've seen it well Jeffrey it haunted Cameron all the way to the Oscars now getting to the re-release L. Thompson maybe it's Leah Thompson from uh, E! Online <laughs> says, Near, far, wherever you are sitting in the theater, the newly revamped Titanic now has stuff coming out at you. They work really hard to get that Celine Dion quote in there. Uh, I don't remember any of the 3D stuff, Alex. I know I screened it, uh, but I don't remember any memorable 3D, like nothing coming at me. Do you remember? Did the ship uh, like come at you when before it hit the iceberg? I mean, when the ship, like when it broke off, where it went vertical and then came down to sink, mm -hmm. 
I really remember that. And some stuff in the engine room looked kind of cool, like with the turbines going and whatnot. Um, they handled the window. Was it almost like it was going to slap you on the face? It was just, it was Titanic with like, ooh. It was, <laughs> I remember specifically watching that saying, this didn't need to happen. <laughs> that was basically Such a tragedy. Thought. They could have avoided that iceberg. <laughs> oh, you mean the Oh, 3D. no, I meant the 3D release. <laughs> <laughs> That, like I watched it and I was like, why didn't they just release the movie again? <laughs> because they can charge more for three D tickets, Alex. Come on. Uh, I know these things. I know. Yeah, and, and James Cameron needed the money because he had like, I don't know, eight more avatars. <laughs> he only had he only had two hundred billion dollars in his <laughs> bank account. All right, and finally, Brian Orndorff from brianorndorff.com says, Titanic went from a certain failure to a feature everyone had to see. If you were in a training bra during its initial theatrical release, you probably saw it a few more times than everyone else. Brian, that's a little offensive. (laughs) Yeah, that's weird. It's just, I don't know, it sounds incredibly condescending to anybody that happened to be a preteen, that happened to be female and a preteen back when Titanic came out. I don't know. You're weird, Brian. I don't know that we're reading any of your quotes ever again. We'll uh, we'll save this for the second portion of the podcast. How old were you in this? Like uh, the deeper discussion, we'll save for the second portion. But how old were you? Have been in '97? Uh, seventeen. Okay, so I was ten. I was out of my training bra and... by then. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and I think we'll compare our stories of the cultural renaissance that this movie created. Oh yeah, because so... Peru didn't care about the Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> They said, naive white people. (laughs) What do you call the Titanic? A good start. (laughs) All right, Titanic, we are here. We have arrived. Leonardo DiCaprio, Kate Winslet, Jimmy Cameron returning back to the fold after our epic Terminator (laughs) two-parter with our friend Chaz Fisher not too long ago. Uh, So Julio, when this was initially released, did you see it in theaters? I did. I did. And uh, all joking aside, the lines in Peru were as long as the lines here in the United States. Yeah, I I did not see it. I would have been 10 when this movie came out. And I don't think I was allowed to see. No, I wasn't allowed to see it. I actually am now that I'm thinking about it, accessing my schema in my brain. Um, (laughs) My parents got a babysitter for my sister and I for them to go see it, which was like not a thing. (laughs) The reason I remember it is because that is not a thing that happened. My parents didn't really go to the movies by themselves. They would take us with them. And that should speak to like the, the the magnitude of Titanic. They got a babysitter specifically to watch us so they could go see Titanic. They couldn't. Uh, they didn't want to risk getting spoiled. Yes. And they only had like a fucking year to see it in the theater. <laughs> I remember there was a theater in the town next to us that literally had it for a year. Like it was yeah, kids today will never know. Uh, <laughs> Titanic and Toy Story 2 are the only movies that I've ever seen stay in a theater for close to a literal 365 days. So that being said, I did not see it. We did have the, I think my dad might have gotten it for my mom for Christmas, which would have been in 98. Yeah, when the VHS came out, the the double set, which is by today's standards, one of the, uh, what's the line in Wayne's World uh, about Frampton Comes Alive? They gave this out with samples of Tide. That's basically, if you grew up in the 90s, your household had the dual VHS set of Titanic. 
So while I did not see it in theaters upon its initial release, I was very aware of its cultural footprint. Did they let you watch the, the VHS? Only the first tape, maybe? So you wouldn't get to the, the sexy stuff? So I was never truly that interested in it. I, I didn't like... Um, so if I remember correctly, it wasn't the, like the tits that bothered... <laughs> My family, it was like the distress and Billy Zane's acting. <laughs> can't handle it. Lovejoy. No, I have a better idea. Um, my parents, especially when I was a little kid, when I was a little kid versus like my sister when she became my age, it was a thing of like explaining historical violence is difficult and i you know i was the firstborn so they were trying to figure that out uh before my they got to my sister and they kind of figured it out a little bit better which is something that is kind of interesting of like you know uh for example if i ever have any kids trying to explain to them like um 9-11 or something like that because while there have been movies made about it already you can rest assured there will be more in the years to come or like the Oklahoma City bombing, things that we lived through. Obviously, the Titanic's a little bit different because it's not a terrorist attack. Trump's presidency. There you go. That's closer. I was trying to <laughs> take the high road and not go there, considering we're so fresh from the wound. Don't but, worry, my friend. Uh, I'm here to take the the low road any chance we can. That's the Tom Haverford. He tells everyone to take the high road to leave him more room on the low road. <laughs> so... I get that, and so that's that's my long-winded way of saying why I never saw this as a kid, because it was uh, as much fantastical elements as there are to Titanic. Still, at the end, a lot of people fucking die, and especially, like, those shots of, like, frozen solid babies floating in the water and stuff like that. That's a bit more for a brain to consume as a 10-year-old than a pair of tits are. But because of the embedded knowledge that it's this hyper frou-frou love story that's what never really enticed me about it and i didn't see titanic cover to cover until i was probably in my 20s and uh honestly the first time i watched titanic i, I can't remember exactly when it was i knew all of the beats i, I knew like all the the big scenes and everything i was about I, to say was there any magic left were there any surprises yes <laughs> Well, no, I was about to go into real talk, but uh, <laughs> I remember the first time I watched it, like I was like uh, Jason Siegel, that clip of him and I love you, man, when he's watching choke a lot. And he's like, he's like smiling because he's so happy, but he just goes <laughs> stupid. Uh, so that is to say, coming back, you know, another 10 or so years later into my 30s, watching it for the contrarians and watching it through this lens. Ho, baby. <laughs> This movie, <laughs> my plan for this, Julio, is we're going to kind of walk through it because everyone knows the story of this movie and we'll kind of call out as we go through it some of the ridiculous points of it. Because honestly, if we want to describe this movie, we can do that in 30 seconds. <laughs> Old Broad sees that the, they're exploring the Titanic. She comes to tell her tale. It's a, it's a flashback movie. You know, it's James Cameron's favorite trope that he rests on. James Cameron did not invent the science fiction movie. He did not invent the futuristic movie. And he certainly didn't invent the movie where the old person tells the story. <laughs> and so this, you know, this is Jimmy Cameron 101. Really, people forget that this movie is about... <laughs> It's about Bill Paxton and him <laughs> wanting to find this goddamn diamond. And he doesn't really care this old woman's story. It's a movie about a man trying to find something to buy him, you know, bring him unfortold riches. 
unfortunately that that very interesting story gets sidetracked when uh, <laughs> when the old lady starts talking and then dramatically sidetracked i remember watching this movie for the first time and <laughs> feeling cheated when i realized that bill paxton was not a bigger part of the movie because he's he's like the cool dude in the in the opening in the opening twenty minutes because it takes like twenty minutes for the movie to actually start like in the Titanic. But uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I always forget how long it takes to get to what we came for, <laughs> and it's like I've mentioned this before on the podcast. I had a real I spent like a hundred and fifty dollars on this meal in New Orleans a few years ago, going there knowing I would, but that's because like. I got like a shrimp cocktail appetizer, a lobster tail, and then I got my steak and then a dessert. And it was like, it just kept incrementally growing. With this, it's like 20 minutes of nothing. It's like uh, <laughs> Chili's grade chips and salsa. And it's like, get to it. We know what we came for. Leonardo DiCaprio's on the fucking poster. I didn't pay to see, what's her name? Gloria Stewart? <laughs> yes. Like, who went into this wanting to see Gloria Stewart? I can understand your point, though, because the first thing you see, uh, or one of the first things that come into focus in the modern day setting, you have fucking Bill Paxton in his earring looking like an extra that got cut from Empire Records. <laughs> his hair. I've never seen uh, semi-blonde Bill Paxton, and uh, it was really doing it for me. He looks like mud. Like, he looks <laughs> like he, he should have been mud. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's always a joy to see Bill Paxton and always a bummer Agreed. when you realize that he's not really the driving force of the movie. Yeah, and honestly the like the first note I have here that really caught me off guard and it like <laughs> it it sidetracked my interest in the movie for a significant portion until I figured out what was going on was that uh it was 20th Century Fox and Paramount Pictures presents. <laughs> And I was like, wait, what the fuck? They're doing like these opening credits over the sepia tone. And then we cut to Bill Paxton's earring and <laughs> they find this, you know, they find this uh, safe in the ruins of the Titanic. And they think they found the, they call it the, the, the heart of the ocean. Is that the name of the diamond? Mm -hmm. And they, they, there's nothing in it, but they find the drawing and then the old bags at home and she sees the drawing of herself. And then she comes in and introduces herself to Bill Paxton and says, you know, well, I was on the Titanic. Da, 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 da. This whole time I was like, wait, 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 wait. Why is this 20th Century Fox and Paramount presents? <laughs> so all I truly gained from the first 20 minutes of the movie was uh, all I thirsted for was understanding why it was 20th Century Fox and Paramount. And so that led me, you know, down the path of discovering that James Cameron initially claimed that he could make the movie for $80 million, LOL. But during <laughs> development, it quickly became clear that this number was way too conservative. 20th Century Fox's own estimations budgeted the film at $135 million, but set construction soon turned out so costly and time-consuming that the film had already been two months behind before any filming had been done. This required the aid of a second studio to cope with the costs. Universal Pictures was in the running for a long time, but ultimately passed. Paramount was finally willing to step in to contribute an additional $65 million in exchange for U.S. distribution rights. This was the full extent of Paramount's contributions, meaning that Fox was still responsible for all future budget overruns of, obviously, there were, they were plentiful. And it would have undoubtedly meant the end of 20th Century Fox if the film had not been successful. So my main takeaway from the first 20 minutes of this movie was that James Cameron could sell a ketchup popsicle to a woman in white gloves. He's like, yeah, just 
just keep it coming, keep it coming. And you and you finished reading all that stuff. You looked up, and then she was like, 20 years ago, or <laughs> eighty-four years <Yeah>. ago." <laughs> um, well, at least you had something entertaining to uh, to get you through those twenty minutes. What I kept thinking about was that this lady, Lori Stewart, she was nominated for best supporting actress. And she was. I just couldn't. I was like, "What's her Oscar clip? Is it when she says, i 'I'll be goddamned'? Because <laughs> that's the closest <laughs> she comes to, I guess, wowing me with with her performance. Uh, and it's a shame because honestly, I I I'd forgotten that she was part of the movie. And when she first showed up, I was like, "Man, they did a pretty good job aging Kate Winslet." And then, <laughs> of course, the realization that no, that was that was not the case. It was just a completely different actress. Completely different mannerisms, completely different weird American accent. Uh, I don't need the first twenty minutes of this movie. I I think that you could have just opened with Billy Zane opening the door for Kate Winslet, and then we're in. See, that's like in my memory. Like upon this rewatch, that's where the movie starts. I completely forgot that there's the part where Bill Paxton looks at Gloria Stewart and says, "Are you ready to go back to Titanic?" <laughs> but of course, we get where we want to go and that is back to 1912 and we see uh my note says yep there's the boat we get all these long establishing shots of the titanic and you can just hear james cameron feverishly beating off in the background (laughs) as to what he's accomplished we're introduced quick to uh jack dawson leonardo dicaprio he's in a nearby tavern he wins uh him and is it francisco his uh his confidant fabrizio fabrizio an Italian stereotype. And if you want to know how much of a stereotype he is, his last written line in the movie is, Bastardo! <laughs> but yeah, Leo, a, a, a drifter, a vagrant, a vagabond, he wins his, um, I think they're like third class uh, steerage, passes onto the Titanic in a, he went, uh, in a card game. He has a full house, so he makes his way there. We're introduced to the aforementioned Billy Zane and Kate Winslet. They come from much higher means. I man, that shot of Kate Winslet getting out of the car with the the big hat, the hat and the yeah. real reveal of her face—that's not to speak morbidly, but that's going to have to be her clip for in memoriam because that's like <laughs> one of her most famous <laughs> clips ever, and one of the most famous clips like from this movie, which is one of the most famous movies ever. So I mean, that says a lot. <laughs> uh, my note here just says Billy Zane, what a cock. What's the deal with Billy Zane here? I don't I don't know. Do you know Billy Zane from any other movies? No. <laughs> I I know Billy Zane from Titanic. He's the the Phantom though, right? He is the Phantom, but I've never watched the Phantom. It, it almost feels like why would I watch any other Billy Zane movies having watched Titanic? It's like if, if if this was I'm assuming that he was doing the best he could here. And if this is his best, then I really don't want to see any lesser work from him. Cuz I don't know that I can take it. <laughs> I don't yeah exactly. I don't know if I can take what's beneath this. <laughs> exactly. So why bother? Probably a nice guy, but man, yeah, he gets out and he's it's nothing we haven't seen before. He's the aristocratic character that's just above it all and hmm, I can just pay to have this taken care of for me. And he's got his fucking uh odd job hat on that I kept expecting him to toss like a frisbee at fucking Jack <laughs> at any point in the movie. Uh but then we get Kathy Bates in this movie, you think it's going to be this like cornucopia of A-list talent, <laughs> but you just kind of get to Kathy Bates and then it's done. 
It's just kind of like, that's it. No, no more moving forward. And even Kathy Bates, I mean, she doesn't really get much to do. They give her a full introduction. They introduce her in voiceover. And you think, I- I'm guessing she is based on a real person, right? That's why it's such a big deal that she's in the movie. Uh, I believe so. I do know that like Reba McIntyre was supposed to play her role originally, but had to drop out, which depending on your prerogative is good or not good. <laughs> it's puzzling. Because <laughs> Molly Brown, right? Uh-huh. But, yeah. but yeah, because she's yeah. like the unsinkable Molly Brown. And so yes, that sounded yes, to yes, me yes, like yes. it was it was somebody that existed in real life. And that was Cameron just like throwing a little bit of realism, which this movie needed desperately. Yes, because she was the real person that actually tried to galvanize the people in her boat to go back and rescue people. Why wouldn't you make a movie about her? <laughs> That's, throughout this movie, throughout the three hours and 15 minutes of this movie, I kept thinking, man, I really would have liked the movie to focus on this character or this. It started with Bill Paxton and then, you know, the unsinkable Molly Brown and then other characters like the captain or the dude that ends up shooting himself in the head or the, the band. Like everybody here is the interesting characters are in the periphery, but instead we spend most of the runtime with Leo and Kate, which, you know, they're pretty to look at. I'm just even curious, like David Warner, you know, Lovejoy, how he got on the boat. He's clearly a bounty hunter from somewhere. <laughs> I, I want more information on him. When they finally, when the Mandalorian took his helmet off at, at the end of this last season, it was it David was Warner. David Warner. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Phantom came in and it says, Lovejoy, let's go. <laughs> and they're off, as my note says. The Titanic sets sail. Nothing can possibly go wrong. Bernard Hill, we have him as the captain. Uh, who else do we have on this? Uh, Victor Garber. Jonathan Jeffrey. Victor Garber. Is he doing a German accent, Victor Garber? He's doing an accent. I know that for a fact, but I don't know what kind of accent he's doing. Yeah, the accental work in this movie is quizzical in a lot of levels. I know even Kate Winslet has personally said that she found her American accent uh, accent kind of baffling in this movie. But yeah, good call on Victor Garber because it's like, what are you trying to be right now, man? <laughs> If they had just shown him every time he was on screen, he had a snifter of brandy, so I could just think that he was drunk right. the whole time. That would that would make a lot more sense. Um, I forgot it comes this early in the movie, but Leo and uh, Francesco Fabrizio, uh, <laughs> Italian guy, bastardo, uh, they make their way to the bow of the boat, and this is where the very famous I'm the king of the world line comes from, which is ad-libbed is something that I guess I didn't know. Um, any bigger line from this movie that penetrated pop culture more? Uh, I mean, draw me like your French girls. and uh, Am I flying, maybe? Uh, I, I always, I've, I've always been partial to iceberg right ahead. <laughs> it's a little uh, more exciting. I'll never let go. Eh. There's, there's a few lines, but I think a lot of people... I would think an overwhelming majority of people actually, when they think of Titanic, would think, I'm the king of the world. My question is, where is everyone? <laughs> like this this ship just set sail, this historical event is happening, and this fucking vagabond is the only person on the bow of this boat. Like and it's it, it, it's perfect sunset. It's not even sunset, it's like the light of day. It's probably the morning when they set off, or it's noon, I believe. But whatever the case, no one is out there to enjoy this except this fucking drifter. It's not the last time that this will happen, though. That that area of the of the ship seems to be deserted most of the time. 
No one wants to be at the most Instagram worthy place on the boat. <laughs> but we learn more about Leo. He's not only the king of the world, but he's obviously a, an accomplished uh, artist. He's uh, We see him drawing. It's not quite on the bow, but kind of just in one of the social places on the boat. He's drawing this uh, man holding his daughter. I'm curious how long this man was holding his daughter over the, the railing of the boat in order to get Leo to capture you know a full-on charcoal yeah, sketch. I know, but, but do you know what he is, Alex? He's a bum. My note says Vincent Vega would be disgusted that... That Leo DiCaprio is just, uh, he's just bumming around the Titanic and Cameron is trying to sell it to us like he is this, uh, I don't know, bohemian artist when really he's just, he's a bum. He's a bum, Jules. That's a terrific reference. They got a word for that, Jules. It's a bum. Oh, man. If Billy Zane had pulled that in the, when, they're, when they're having their dinner and DiCaprio is trying to explain how he just walks the earth. <laughs> They have a word for that. It's bum. So, naturally, it took us fucking 40 minutes or so to get there, but uh, our two main characters, our titular characters, Titanic, they they meet here in the middle. Tale as old as time type shit. Rose, Kate Winslet, is... uh, She feels drowned, no pun intended, or just kind of smothered by her very hoity-toity, and I used the word earlier, aristocratic surroundings, be it her kind of forced fiancé, Billy Zane, her mother. Uh, who plays her mother? Yep. It's Frances uh, Fisher. Frances Fisher, right? Yeah. So, you know, she's expected to be this certain thing, and it becomes overwhelming for her, so she kind of goes out uh, onto the deck, and Leo, Jack Dawson, immediately sees her, and, you know, smitten is too too light a word to describe the situation. He has like this just unbreakable eye connection with her. And you would think it's love at first sight, but she kind of looks at him and she's the kind of just, she basically gives him the look of like, I know you're staring at me. Please stop. (laughs) It's like food court action, you know, in seventh grade or something when a girl sees you looking at her and it's just like, no, this isn't going to happen. Just kind of knock it off. He is. uh, Well, he's also, he's literally and figuratively beneath her because he's on the lower deck. And she's up there because James Cameron, he he wanted to make sure you you got the the idea that they're they're from separate statuses. So my next note is, how did I forget there was a suicide attempt in this movie? <laughs> As I honestly forgot, Kate Winslet becomes so overwhelmed by her life that she goes out back to the bow and hops over the the railing and is gonna kill herself. She's planning on jumping off and. This is where we have our Jack and Rose meeting because he's out there smoking a cigarette or some shit. And he goes up and uh, proverbially and literally tries to talk her off a ledge. Eventually does kind of pulls her back in. She slips, but he pulls her back in. And that's when don't the guards come and it basically looks like a rape scene type thing. Right. Because he was getting ready to jump after her. So he took his shoes off and uh, I guess his jacket off. And then they when she fell on the deck they rolled so he's on top of her it's just you know it happens it can happen to anyone it happens to the best of us (laughs) yes but so they try to arrest him for i i guess indecent contact or you know whatever they would charge him with It, it doesn't look like a good scene but then rose bails him out and says i had slipped and he was there to save me she tells the truth somewhat 
Kind of, yeah. And, but then he acts like surprised, like he's supposed to lie instead of just saying, that's what I fucking told you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, DiCaprio's defense is to when they when they accuse him of, I guess, trying to rape her is to just shut down. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't even ask for his lawyer. He's just like, "All right, cuff me." But anyway, then he kind of like really cockily asks Lovejoy for a cigarette, and this fucker again, he's a bounty hunter. He knows what he's doing, <laughs> and he's just like, "Interesting. You could get your jacket and boots off before you decided to grab her, or something ridiculous like that." He he knows the score in this one. Uh, this leads to more time spent together with Rose and Jack during the process of all this when Cal, we keep calling him Billy Zane, his character <laughs> does have a name, and it's Cal. Uh, this is He tries to wow Rose. He gives her that diamond that we refer to as the, the heart of the sea or heart of the ocean, which I'm pretty sure she only wears once in the movie, which we'll eventually get to. But Rose is immediately fascinated with Jack. They spend more time together. She... Uh, I have the line written down here because it's so ridiculous. She sees his little folder of sketches. She opens it. It's a folder that contains utensils you use to draw (laughs) and drawings. And she asks, what are you, some kind of artist? And it's like an SNL thing. It's like, yes, you clearly understand what's going on here. Well, I'm assuming that she's really sheltered, uh, you know, because she's been suffering in this really terrible life of hers that almost drove her to suicide just the prospect of marrying billy zane and and suddenly being wealthy beyond her wildest dreams that was just too much for her to handle so i i think that you can forgive her for being a little uh spaced out when she's talking to leo it's a fair point but she uh reconvenes with him they kind of had a have a fun playful back and forth and she says yeah we were inviting you to dinner tonight uh, with the you know the aristocrats the the, the hoity toities the higher class what first class is the word I keep looking for and blanking on so the, she, he, he's gonna have dinner with Rose's family uh, kind of running I guess parallel to this even though they're all on the same ship the character of J Bruce Ismay the Jonathan Hyde character in this movie who is he's basically like a promoter. I guess is what I've taken away from it. Uh, a marketing guy. The, the way they describe him here is the managing director for white star line, but he's basically this guy. He's a businessman and he's there to show all the whimsy and wonder of what the Titanic can for, perform. So he's telling the captain that he wants him to increase the speed so that they can get there, you know, ahead of schedule. So that all the, the press and the, the headlines basically just get the company a ton of good PR and the captain's wanting to go slow, you know. We don't want to overdo it. He's heard that there's some icebergs in the in that area. <laughs> there's a deleted scene where the guy is uh, trying to talk the captain into uh, doing the last day of the of the journey blindfolded. Like it would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, he's like, all right. So when we're about fifty miles out from shore, from where we're supposed to land, let's just reverse the engines and see what happens. <laughs> It's like the end of Django Unchained where uh, Django's making his horse do all these tricks. He's just trying to make <laughs> the Titanic, you know, do some donuts in the, the New York Harbor. Bro, can you drift? <laughs> Jack has dinner with the rich. He goes to the first class. Uh, Kathy Bates, fortunately, kind of suits him up uh, with a, a suit. In between this, this is where they're caught spitting, right? Where he's trying to teach Rose how to be like a, a normal, you know, a oh, youngster. Oh, yeah. 
God, where Kate Winslet tries a southern accent. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and spit like a man. Says, <laughs> Jesus. As, as someone who says y'all about every other word, yeah, hearing shit like that is pretty hard to take in. But what that all is is basically, you've seen Titanic. Rose's mother and the first class bunch see that she could potentially be uh, corrupted by this a vagrant, a bum, Jules, as Julio <laughs> called to attention. Kathy Bates quickly realizes what's going on, and she says something like, do you have any idea or do you comprehend what's going on here? So she helps him out and uh, gives uh, Leo her son's tux. So he looks, he's dressed to the nines to go to dinner. He also looks like a child. That's, yes. Uh, DiCaprio, I mean, he already looked pretty young. He already looked younger than Kate Winslet. And uh, once he cleans up, and they, they do, you know, he he's, slicks his hair back and he he looks like, I don't know, like he's 12. <laughs> it, it's crazy. And and then everybody else around him, you know, they have either facial hair or they just, they're just, they have a bigger build. It's, uh, In Billy Zane's case, he has more dramatic eyebrows. That too. Yeah. The voice, you know, it's just, it looks like he's a little kid going to just have dinner with the adults. Uh, the main thing I've written down from this, I mean, one, you see Leo in a tux and you immediately start expecting him to pop and lock it based just on the, you know, the the gif from, uh, is that Wolf of Wall Street or Great Gatsby where he does the pop and lock? God, I, I wish it was the Great Gatsby because that would make that movie so much better. <laughs> I've never seen the Great Gatsby and I've seen Wolf of Wall Street once. It's It's Wolf. I'm pretty sure it's Wolf of Wall Street. Fair enough. Take your word for it. I have no interest in watching that movie again. So, but yeah, he's in his tux, and I mean, of course, that's where my mind went. And then, secondly, during this discourse about Jack giving his whole fucking Dusty Rhodes hard time promo about, you know, oh, you know, I go, I make my own luck, and or what does he say? He's like, uh, I, he just says, he says, I just walk the earth, Vincent. I walk the earth, yeah, <laughs> on a lucky hand, uh, too lucky or something like that. I, I got ahead of myself there because I wanted to quote Billy Zane because I always think of fucking the Christmas episode in season two of The Office where Dwight quotes Billy Zane. He says, "A real man makes his own luck." Titanic, Billy Zane. <laughs> <laughs> But it goes as you would expect. Uh, Jack holds his own amongst, you know, the, uh, I guess the what you would perceive to be the higher class amongst him. The gentleman to spark for a cigar and brandy. And Jack, being gracious, says, "No, I'll go back to steerage." He does the the classic, you know, the cash handoff. But he uh, goes to shake Rose's hand and gives her a little piece of paper that says something like, if you want a real party, meet me here, here, da, 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 da. I thought I was having deja vu because I was like, no, this is how the movie ends. But then it makes sense in the end. But she walks up and meets him in kind of like the um, the foyer of the entire ship uh, in front of the clock with the big dome glass enclosure. And then oh, they yeah, just go I had and- the same thought. I had. To, I thought you were talking about the boiler room, but yeah, no, I had the same thought with that shot where he's waiting for her and then he turns. Yeah. I was like, whoa, 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 hold on. But then they just go and party with a bunch of miscreants and get really drunk around a bunch of children. Um, I think it's crazy that Billy Zane does not realize that Kate Winslet is very much attracted to Leo and that Leo is is, is putting in the work. The only person that in the ship that really notices is uh, Kathy Bates, and I guess to to an extent, uh, 
Francis, Francis Fisher. Fisher. Yeah. yeah, but I, I think Francis Fisher is more like disgusted, just as in like you shouldn't you shouldn't play with the bum. Whereas like Kathy Bates is like, oh, you guys are gonna fuck. <laughs> it, it, and but Billy Zane, he is oblivious. He he doesn't. You know, you, you would think that him being as as possessive and as jealous as as he's depicted in the movie, that he would have his his boy, he would have Lovejoy watching over Kate Winslet at all times. But apparently Kate Winslet just gets to sneak out whenever she wants and, you know, come back drunk later and doesn't face any consequences until the next day. I was expecting Billy Zane to be waiting for her. Like there's like I think Billy Zane sees them like running off holding hands and he's still just like, what are they doing? Like (laughs) it's basically like some the equivalent. He doesn't figure it out until he found finds out that like Jack draw drew his fiance (laughs) naked. It's like the modern delusional boyfriend of today that doesn't figure it out till he picks up a phone and sees nudes of his chick on it. Like, <laughs> oh God, Lovejoy has to sit him down and just explain to him what's going on. Well, Lovejoy's answer for everything is pulling out his gat and you know just taking care of business on the spot. So yeah, like you said, they get drunk and they they dance. Uh, they do some polka, some tap they dancing. Have, yeah, a joyous good time. And, of course, this leads to Jack getting blacklisted. Like Julio had mentioned, uh, Francis Fisher tells Rose, you are not to see that boy anymore. And yeah, uh, Billy Zane, the the one who should care, the man who beds this woman, is just kind of like, eh, whatever. Where's my money? <laughs> we get our first uh, ice warning ahead. The, the captain gets an ice warning. I believe this is in front of Rose and her mother. Because doesn't the captain say something like, ah, not to fear, Bernard Hill. Just, eh, it's going to be fine. Nothing can sink the Titanic. He blows his nose on the notice and then throws it away. <laughs> he just reads it and he just chucks it overboard. <laughs> See, that's what should happen. Like, uh, in a modern James Cameron movie, he would chuck it overboard and it would hit, like, a smaller iceberg. And <laughs> Start that would a chain like reaction. The uh, foreboding sign. Well, speaking of foreboding, though, that was exactly what I was going to bring up, which is that everybody in this movie, anybody that has a speaking part, uh, all manages to have at least one line that makes them sound like they're being ironic about what's going to happen next to the ship. You know what I mean? Like, it almost feels oh, yeah. like they all know, they've all seen the movie Titanic, and now they're trying to be cute about it. They're like, surely nothing would ever happen. Ma'am, this ship is unsinkable. <laughs> Iceberg? <laughs> no way. Iceberg? I barely know her. <laughs> All right. Um, of course, they've made Jack the Forbidden Fruit, so fucking Rose is going to go see him as soon as she can. She goes back to the bow. Again, no one there at sunset. It's fucking <laughs> gorgeous. You would think everyone would be out there watching, seeing what's happening. But she sees Jack and, you know, this... I mentioned probably the most quotable line of the movie earlier, and I think this is probably the most uh, iconic or most memorable, I should say, in most people's minds uh, shot or sequence of the movie in which he has Rose stand up on the railing again at the bow where they first met and put your arms out. Now open your eyes. And then she does like the the fucking orgasm face of like, (laughs) ah. Am I flying, Jack? Am I flying? <laughs> yes, Rose, you're flying. And then this is where they kiss for the first time. Were you relieved 
that Celine Dion's song didn't play in full because in my mind it would just it was gonna blast as soon as they started kissing. But no, it just it stays on the instrumental. Yeah, I, I mean, I had remembered that at no point until the end credits does the song start playing. But I mean, you feel like it probably should for marketing purposes at this point. But this is like the only scene in the movie, it, a little bit of real talk. This is the only scene in the movie that doesn't age too well by visual effects because you can clearly tell that everything around them is green screen because the sunset is just too perfect. And, you know, some of the clipping around their heads and whatnot is not that good. So, you know, 20 odd years later, I think we're coming close next year. will be 25 years. And it, it, this is the one scene that doesn't age too well. The world is not that beautiful. <laughs> Leo, Kate, Sunset, too much for us to process. One of these things must be fake. <laughs> too much going on here. Yeah. Uh, this is where we cut back, snap back to reality. Oh, there goes gravity, where we come back to uh, whatever. I can't remember the name of the, the ship they're on in their quest to figure the out what's Titanic. going on Titanic. Oh, oh fuck <laughs> off. I'm talking about... <laughs> I can't remember the name of the Titanic. No, but uh, Billy Paxton and, and their crew, because this is where we come back and uh, Gloria Stewart's telling the story, because I took note of it because I completely forgot that, um, you know, Hurley from Lost here uses fuck, <laughs> and I forgot that there's a fuck and boobs in this movie. You would think he was fucking Spielberg with Lincoln with the way he swindled the MPAA, uh, getting, you know, a, a motherfucker and, like, full-on just violence in a movie. Here... Jimmy Cameron got a fuck and full on nudity from a woman. That's uh, that's really the only reason I took this for note because he says, um, "What's the captain's name?" Uh, Smith. He's just like he he had the notice right in his fucking hands. And then Bill Paxton's like, "Calm down, Hurley." <laughs> I was gonna call him Harry Knowles. So point taken. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, it's funny though because I. Uh, See, at this scene, right, you're in the middle of a very emotional thing between Jack and, and Rose, and then you cut back, and the joke, and, and the insight, even, is that these guys did not care, right? They're, they're, they're focused on the details, the details of the of the eventual shipwreck, of the, the details of all the technical stuff, right? They don't care about this whole woman's love story, and, uh, and this showed that perfectly, which is why I hated it when later, next time we cut to them, they're all entranced and they're really into it. Because I felt like Cameron was, uh, it turns out that he didn't really have that insight. <laughs> it's not that he was not self-aware of the fact that nobody cares about the love story. Everybody cares about the spectacle. So it was a bummer. But at least for this moment, I was like, that's that's good. Harry Knowles is telling us that uh, the, the really important stuff is the tragedy that's about to, to happen, not their first kiss. Yeah, I guess this it, it's a fitting prelude, and this immediately segues. I forgot the interlude is right before she they go into um, you know, her and Cal's Vegas suite, and they just have paintings from Monet in there. And you know, we have to establish Jack. He's a bum, but he's smart. He's artistic. And oh, Monet, look at the way he uses colors. And this is where I forgot of um. The line, draw me like one of your French girls, is almost like a throwaway because he is preoccupied looking at something else. Jack, I want you to draw me like one of your French girls. He's like, oh, yeah, whatever. It's like me watching TV <laughs> when someone says something to me. And, of course, leads to very famous sequence. Uh, I, I had friends when I was younger that knew exactly where this part was on the VHS for you know material purposes because until you're especially back in the day, 
like especially before high-speed internet, the material you have, you know, your spank bank is very limited. So if your parents had a copy of Titanic in your home and you knew exactly where to go, that was, you know, fair game. Can you imagine going to uh, going to grab the tape for, for a little alone time and uh, and you find that it's already queued up? Yeah, like, <laughs> Dad! <laughs> it's just, you know, one of those things of being old. Uh, which neither of us are quite yet, but the idea of like explaining to someone 10 years from now, of, yeah, there's this tape and you'd have to fast forward, like all the work you would have to do to get to the moment. <laughs> I remember hearing someone once say like, uh, I don't, I don't watch porn unless it's 4k. And I was just, <laughs> it's like you entitled son of a bitch. You don't even know how good you have it. <laughs> Whole generation of people of men, know exactly this scene with Kate Winslet. She really she this is the only scene in the movie where she wears the the diamond of the ocean. She lays down nude, Leo draws her, the very well documented, the hands are actually James Cameron moving and, and I mean what what more can we say about it? Why couldn't DiCaprio do it? They had to pay him more <laughs> for his hands. <laughs> I don't think he was at that level. He was probably just he just couldn't couldn't do it convincingly. He he would start thinking about Kate Winslet naked and he's like, uh can't. I wish God, I wish there was like, you know, um in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the dinner scene that took thirty two hours to shoot. I wish there was some horror story of like this taking, you know, two days and then Jim Cameron just staring at Leo's hands and no, <laughs> god damn it, and then finally just fuck it, I'll do it myself. And then him just slowly like moving charcoal around. The entire time Kate Winslet is like wearing only the diamond. It's like, can we speed this up? Is the camera even on me? Can you even see me? Uh, I did read one thing, like, I think that was the first scene they shot together, similarly to when we talked about Blue is the Warmest Color on our Patreon episode. I think she made a point for Leo to see her naked before they shot together, just to kind of break the tension, which, I mean, good for both of them. That just ruined him for the rest of the shoot, though. You know, it literally became Jack and Rose. of the, She literally became his unobtainable goal. It's like, even as hot as I am, that, that woman is out of my league. Yeah. I could just imagine, uh, you know, Cameron is done with the schedule, and he goes like, all right, so first, we're going to shoot this scene to break the ice. Get it? <laughs> He's like a fucking high school play producer. <laughs> Okay, let's catch up here. Uh, Lovejoy, find her. Billy Zane wants Kate Winslet found. Because uh, after she's drawn, he puts the Diamond of the Ocean back. But um, she inadvertently puts his drawings back in the safe or some shit. And no, she does it on lo- purpose, which is the weirdest thing. I, I This this I didn't remember. Like, Oh, yes, because the note she leaves is for mm-hmm. Billy Zane. Which, again, is some vindictive girlfriend shit. <laughs> Like, this boy pipes me down better than you can. Uh, so he six Lovejoy. He hasn't discovered this yet, by the way. But he says, Lovejoy, you need to find her. You know, he has this whole Billy Zane dialogue. This is ridiculous. You know, I am rich and he is poor. Why would she be doing this? So Lovejoy is on the case. Back in the captain's cabin, uh, the captain is talking about how steady and calm the waters are. And, you know, the the, the stagehand or, you know, the, the young boy tells him, though, we'll make bugs harder to see. <laughs> I 
And then he just kind of walks away. He winks at the camera first, and then he walks away. <laughs> and he says, Titanic! <laughs> so we know trouble's coming. James Cameron's making sure to leave no no iceberg unturned in this case in terms of we we know what's coming at us. Lovejoy finally catches up to Rose and Jack, and they like run away from it. It's like this game of cat and mouse, and she's become fully corrupted at this point because they go to the elevator, and it's one of those old old-timey lifts where it's just like a grate that closes off and so they get there right in time and she fucking gives them the bird on the way down and starts <laughs> laughing and you could she has that innocent laugh about her like oh this is the first time i've ever flipped anybody off <laughs> leo has corrupted this young girl it's more shocking than seeing her naked just seeing her <laughs> giving someone the finger so they go to the literal you know the basement like they're where they are is underwater the the, the fucking bottom of the boat and uh, if you couldn't tell, I'm not a nautical person. I don't know all the terms for these places on boats, but they go down basically where the storage is, where you know the first class have all their cars and whatnot. And this leads to you know the sex scene. I keep referring to like iconic or very memorable scenes in this movie, where we, obviously we don't see them have sex, but man, uh, the the hand on the foggy window that's that's got to be up there with like the most recognizable shots of a movie ever. Did you get the feeling watching it now, maybe even watching it before that this was actually the first time that Leo had sex? Am I giving the movie too much credit <laughs> with the subtext? I, I would believe it's like the first time he's had sex with someone as hot as Kate Winslet. <laughs> Fair enough. I guess, that, I guess that's splitting it down the middle because yeah, I mean the way he talks, right. When he's talking about his adventures in France and whatever, and, and the hookers and the, it sounds like like he's very experienced, but then, yes, we don't see this the actual sex happen, but we see the aftermath. And Kate Winslet seems completely in control. Uh, he seems like he he's almost died. He looks like it was his first time. But you're right. Maybe it's just his first time with someone like Kate Winslet, or his first time in a car. <laughs> I was about to. Yeah, I was about to say we have no idea how long it lasted either. So you know, it could have been like <laughs> thirty seconds later. <laughs> That's why she's completely <laughs> cool. She's like, are you okay? Are you crying? <laughs> uh, so my notes say sex, iceberg. Because this, you know, from the, the height of climax uh, sexually to the height of climax storytelling wise, uh, we have the Titanic running into the iceberg here, which if I understood correctly, uh, in years, like recent years, the research said if they had hit it head on, they the Titanic would have continued like it would have been fine. It would have damaged the bow, but like the ship wouldn't have sank. But uh, in this case, they make a sharp turn to the left, if I remember correctly, and it just fucking like a a hot knife through butter, if I, you know, for lack of a better analogy, they it just guts the bottom of the ship. Yeah, if I didn't know that this happened in real life, I would have thought that it was ridiculous, that there was no way that that could have ever happened. Uh, especially because Victor Garver seems to have all the excuses in the world to explain why this is happening, <laughs> even though it shouldn't. Right? They put all this money on, on, on this ship, and he, was, he designed it to be unsinkable, like Kathy Bates. And yet, all it takes is it just kind of hitting the, the, the iceberg sideways. And uh, and then it's done. They're doomed. I mean, it's it's 
I don't know, it's ludicrous. And actually, I was hoping that there would be somebody who would do a better job of explaining how such a colossal fuck-up could have happened, right? Uh, but but it, it never really happens. And maybe it's just because, you know, I'm looking at it from the year 2020. But, you know, the idea that you could hit an iceberg and then go like, well, in about two and a half hours, we're all going to be dead. And there is nothing we can do to stop it. <laughs> That's, I mean, I understand that. It's also like... This happened 110 years ago, so the first class celebrities wouldn't be able to start live streaming on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) We need out. Uh, They do a pretty good job of explaining, though, the whole thing. There's like the five holes that can fill up or four holes that can fill up and uh, continue on, but not the fifth. Right. But why, why not the fifth? That's what bothers me. (laughs) Why, Victor Garber? (laughs) Yeah. It's like, why wouldn't you make it so that? You know, it just, no matter what happens, you're still okay. (laughs) Because it was, it grazed the iceberg. That's the thing. (laughs) It could have, like you said, it didn't hit it straight on. It's what happened to the Titanic was not this thing where when you look at it happening, you're like, oh, wow, yeah, there's no way anybody would survive that. No, instead, what happened was something where you look at it and you're like, why are they sinking? (laughs) How couldn't they fix this in in two and a half? I know, I've watched too much Star Trek, I guess. (laughs) No, I, I mean, I understand. And yeah, we live in a modern society where like uh, we, we joke, you know, we've joked about the coronavirus now. It's like if you get it, it's not good. Uh, <laughs> and not to downplay it, but like that whole thing of, you know, in the 1800s or uh, I think we made this joke in um, our uh, crucible episode, like back in the 1800s, 1700s. If you got the flu, you're probably going to die. And it's like in this case, in 1912, if you're in a, a giant multi-ton boat, if it gets penetrated <laughs> at any point, it's probably going to sink. You know, it's just different times. Uh, you're saying like a uh, hundred years from now, when they make the movie about the coronavirus, the audiences are going to be like, wait, you're telling me that all they had to do was stay home and they still <laughs> <laughs> let the pandemic take over the world? Yeah. They, I get it they still went to Chili's. Like, what? What is their problem? <laughs> so yeah, Victor Garber. You keep name dropping him, and he he basically this is like one of the scenes in the movie that actually there's some exposition to it. He lays out the the architecture for it. He's like, here, here, and here. If it fills up, we'll be fine. Not here. No, 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 no. <laughs> and then, you know, they come in and God damn it, Doc, lay it to us straight. And he says the boat will sink in an hour. Two max, or maybe two hours tops. What is really meant by that statement is we have two hours left in this movie. <laughs> yep. That's, w- that's what he means by saying that. <laughs> and then, of course, from here, it's just all downhill uh, in some aspects. It's disaster porn. Yes. <laughs> some some aspects of the boat go up but not down. Um, I always think that scene, I think it's really cute when the rats are all wet and running and the people are following them. Like, if this is where the rat's going, it's good enough for me. But yeah, this is where shit just comes off the rails. Leo, I know Leonardo DiCaprio is an amazing actor. Uh, He's won an Oscar. I've seen things he's great in. I thought Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was like uh, one of the better performances of my lifetime from an actor, especially in modern terms. When he looks around at the surroundings and goes, this is bad. I'm like, is this community theater? What the fuck are we doing here? Uh, too much time around Billy Zane. It just, he caught the Zane bug. To me, this is where the movie goes from being just kind of boring and unremarkable to being kind of offensive. 
because what happens next is, yeah, you're right. We're like maybe halfway through the movie, right? And it's just, from now on, it's just one giant set piece depicting the the sinking of the Titanic. But it's not given the gravitas that we give tragedies in other movies, right? This is, I mean, fucking Spielberg didn't do Schindler's List as an action movie. Oliver Stone didn't do a Wall Trade Center as as a as a three D adventure. You know, it was just these are serious things. Like real people died, and Cameron just turns it into like a, a a theme park roller coaster for the last hour and a half of the movie. Kind of like, oh well, you know, people die, but isn't it cool? <laughs> That's the biggest Titanic problem for me. Uh, yeah, Saving Private Ryan, like the the war porn of people like blowing up. I can't remember. There's one scene in that movie where a guy goes to strap a bomb to a tank and it backfires and blows him up. And it's this really like visceral, a sack of squibs that Spielberg blew up. And so, yeah, exactly to the point. It's like, this is where Cameron started like, you know, running his hands together and saying my time to shine, baby. (laughs) Let's make these babies freeze. Uh, the ship starts going down. I mean, at this point, deluge downhill, whatever terminology you want to use, whatever synonym you want to use, this is where uh, it begins. Billy Zane is still not taking it seriously, <laughs> despite like all the news and the warnings. He looks so annoyed. Yeah, he. they ask him to put his life vest on, and he asks, acts like it's... A, uh, at this point in the movie, I was like, oh, God, this is playing like a parallel to what we're going through right now that I did not expect <laughs> to happen. The rich people, though, you know, the, the first class are like, no, I don't have to do this. It's beneath me. <laughs> None of them wearing masks. And then the common people are just like, for God's sakes, let us live. <laughs> I think it's is it Victor Garber that tells one of the like the security guards on the boat, like, put a life vest on, set a good example. Uh, it's just like Jesus, <laughs> what a time to be watching this. I, I don't think that that sounds that sounds way too, uh, I guess, confident to be Victor Garber because after they hit the iceberg, he just falls apart. He just starts drinking, and he's like, "It's over." <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it was probably one of the officers. Uh, which again goes back to my point that especially now, once they they hit the iceberg and and there's a, an actual crisis going on, the really interesting people are kind of around the story not in the story uh i would have loved to get more of all those guys that were trying to evacuate the ship and keep some sort of order uh but instead what we get is just leo and kate running around the ship yeah and in that vein um lovejoy and billy zane frame jack for trying to steal the the heart of the ocean the diamond they lock him up in whatever the holding cell was at the time. It begins to flood. Kate Winslet is getting uh, – everyone's getting loaded onto these emergency ships to be taken off. Uh, Rose is there with Cal. Uh, they attempt to load her, and she says no. Uh, she's going back for Jack. She spits in the face of Billy Zane, a disgusting loogie, and then <laughs> takes off. Uh, she's able to save Jack. She takes an axe and cuts him free of the handcuffs that he's binded by. Meanwhile, things are just falling apart with these escape boats they're trying to, you know, load passengers off on. They're trying to do women and children only. Uh, the men are trying to get in. Some of the, the fucking cowards abound. You know, we have uh, uh, Jonathan Wild, uh, J. Bruce Ismay. He he has a real coward's retreat. And, you know, deservedly so, the movie presents it as such. 
They, they really do not cast him in a fair light. <laughs> That's the one guy they give. They have more sympathy for for Billy Zane than they do for this guy because they hold on that shameful close up as he's <laughs> going down on the on the boat. Yeah, the camera's just whispering to him. Think about what you did. <laughs> Think about it. Cal and Jack are able to successfully like co-negotiate Rose onto a boat uh, to get away, and as she's being lowered. The melody of My Heart Will Go On begins to play, and she doesn't want to be without Jack, so she jumps off. And this obviously just completely makes Cal snap. He grabs a documented and known bounty hunter Lovejoy's gun out of his <laughs> waistband and takes off and just starts unloading. <laughs> he He's a terrible shot. He, he unloads an entire clip and doesn't hit Jack or Rose once, but obviously they have to retreat into the water, so... Shit's not good. Uh, here's another amazing line. I think this was in the trailer, which is when uh, Billy Zane goes, I hope you enjoy your time together. Yeah, he, he unloads and he the, the gun, you know, uh, locks up because he unloaded the clip and he's just looking at it like, what is this piece of machinery? <laughs> and then, I hope you enjoy your time together. And then we get that shot of him like laughing to himself that you sent me the gif of that earlier this week yep. when he realizes that she has the diamond. Is this the last time that we see Lovejoy, by the way? Because if, if he shows up later, I lost track of him. Uh, no, we do see him later. He's all covered in blood, and he falls when the ship breaks. Really? Okay, I missed that. I was I must yeah. have been busy making fun of the movie on my notebook. He's, he did like a five-alarm blade job, and he's right <laughs> where the ship breaks when it goes down. And that's uh, – he, he falls. Goes down. Well, Go that, down, that answers Jesus. my uh, what happened to Lovejoy question. <laughs> he died. Good. Billy Zane. Yeah, no simpy from Billy Zane. He was just like, uh, <laughs> give me your gun. I've paid you to do your job and you failed. You go die now. <laughs> At least to be fair, I think that was Lovejoy covered in blood that fell where the ship broke. I could be wrong. Contrarian's faithful if I am. Be sure to reach out. Uh, speaking of died, First Officer William Murdoch, this is the point where he loses complete control. He shoots several people that are trying to load the ships this is the bastardo <laughs> when he gets cursed for he killed um the irish fella mm-hmm. and then he turns the gun on himself and this is actually uh, I, he does he signs off and i watched a a video one time of the top 10 what have i done deaths in movies and i think this was near the top of the list that sounds amazing and yeah he shoots himself and he falls overboard and i mean but you know what bothers me is that the movie keeps showing you able-bodied people that are just kind of moping around in their quarters even the captain you know the captain kind of retreats to the captain's cabin and he's just kind of waiting for death and i was like you know they could use you out there because <laughs> there's still boats that need to be loaded and there's still people that could have survived. But, you know, if nothing else, go over there and help with crowd control. But then yeah. these fuckers just kind of give up. And they're like, all right, well, I'm going to go lie down in bed and just wait for it all to be over. This is this is the end, or so we would think. The ship breaks and it starts to go up before it's completely going to go down into the water and completely submerge. Uh, you know, we're beyond the point of capsizing Jack and Rose go to the bow, basically to the railing to hold on fucking Rose has the temerity to say, Jack, this is where we first met during this moment. <laughs> the Titanic. I think it was at sea for three days and they've known each other. How long? 
during this process? Maybe two days. Do we have enough time to reflect on <laughs> how long we've known each other? I don't think so. Uh, yeah, this was uh, this was how the trailer ended, or at least what the trailers ended. I think they're they're on top because the, the ship is vertical now, and uh, and it's sinking, and they're on top of it. I think it's Kate Winslet that goes like, "Oh my god, oh my god," and and uh, Leo is like, "This is it." Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do remember that because I remember that from the VHSs that the the preview for that was on. They um, completely spoiled this movie in the trailer. <laughs> now you know the ship sinks. <laughs> How does this movie end? But seriously, uh, it, that was something else that bothered me as I was watching it. That Cameron actually shoots this and edits it and whatever as if we don't know what's going to happen. We knew. I mean, we knew it was going to hit the iceberg. We knew that the ship was going to sink. And perhaps worst of all, we know that Rose is going to survive. Because there's an old lady telling the story. So to me, there was very little tension Uh watching it because you know how everything plays out you know it's like okay you don't know what happens to leo that's about it you even know that billy zane lives because they early in the movie they they mentioned that uh that he had uh filed the insurance papers for the diamond that's how uh yes that's how bill paxton knew that the diamond was still out there so it's there's really no tension at all. It's just like a lot of a spectacle when we already know what the what the end was. Like even going back to something like Saving Private Ryan, like Saving Private Ryan, like I knew America won the war, but I didn't know if Tom Hanks was gonna make it. You know, <laughs> I didn't know if Matt Damon was gonna go with them. So, but here it's nothing. It's like DiCaprio might be like the one question mark, uh, and it, it's not enough. So the ship goes down. They're in the water. It's freezing cold, as we know. Uh, Leo is able to help Rose and get her up on like a piece of a, uh, not a, it's not a banister. It's like a dresser is the word I'm looking for a, a dresser, maybe like a dinner table or some shit it's floating. He's able to load her up on there and they begin holding hands and it, it looks bleak. It certainly does. <laughs> you know, they have the promise that they make of, you know, you're going to grow up and you're going to get out of here and you're going to die an old woman in your bed and you're going to be fine. And, she says, I love you, Jack. Again, uh, looking it up, the Titanic was only running for four days. <laughs> they knew each other for maybe two of those. But, you know, uh, I guess you got to make a movie somehow. And unfortunately, Jack passes and she has to part from him. But she does promise that I'll never let go. She goes and she's she's saved, you know. They, they come back and she's the only person alive in her little uh, area. She finds a, a whistle from one of the captains that had since perished and help summon people back to her. Uh, Rose gets saved, gets on the Carpathian. They take her to New York. Uh, we get the one possible scene where, you know, Billy Zane's looking for, her, and maybe well, they'll be rekindled, but not. Um, she's still wearing the jacket that he put on her. Man, all that <laughs> turbulence that she went through and that diamond still in that pocket. Yep. Yep. That, that is unreal, almost unfathomable and unrealistic. Yeah, there's no way that, one, the diamond didn't just fall off. And two, if it didn't fall off, there's no way she didn't notice up till now. You tell me she never put her hands in her pockets because it was so fucking cold. <laughs> she waited until the camera was perfectly queued up to capture her face as she notices that she has a diamond in her pocket. She had to be right under the proper lining of the Statue of Liberty. Right. Like a fucking Joel Schumacher Batman film. 
so what it turns out is that she's just been conning these people the entire time. The old bag had that diamond on her the entire time. <laughs> so yeah, Rose goes and throws the diamond back into the ocean and has a, a peaceful night's rest. Okay, so you think that she's sleeping there? Because I remember Is the thought that she passes away? Right. That's what I thought. I thought that she... In fact, my recollection was that she threw the diamond and then she jumped herself. So I was pretty disappointed when she didn't commit suicide at the end of the movie. Good God, Julio. Well, dude, I was... I was... Like, a little bit of real talk. I was getting excited because I was like, holy shit, did they really... Did Cameron sucker punch everybody this way? You know? Like, she finally does what what Leo stopped her from doing all those years ago. Uh... But no. And then, of course, my next thought was like, okay, but she dies anyway, right? And then the the movie's super cheesy version of Heaven is that she she's back in the Titanic. <laughs> that sounds like purgatory. <laughs> or, you know, it's just like the source code thing. It's just repeating the same, you know, memory in your head over and over again. So she has like two days of bliss with Leo. And then she has to live through the nightmare of the, the ship sinking all over again. <laughs> It's worth it, though, for that sweet, sweet Leo love. But it's like, uh, and she sees everybody, it's, because it's just so unrealistic. It's not even that she's remembering something that happened. It's that she's arriving. and It's the series finale of Scrubs. <laughs> but really, they brought everybody there, even Brandon Fraser. He's, he's you know, <laughs> I really, I should have thought, I should have paused and see if I could find Lovejoy back there. Or even Billy Zane. <laughs> just polishing his gun. Yeah. <laughs> I was looking for Billy Zane because how much of a cuck would he have to be to be there applauding Leo, like taking his fiance's hand? Uh, Nonetheless, Titanic. <laughs> My final note was perfect. I think that's a. a my thought of perfect is about as good as a segue as we'll get into. How how egotistical is that? My thought is what will segue us into the second half. Julio, what was your final note? Adequate? <laughs> All right. Well, let's go to real talk. Funny. I put the diamond in the coat. And I put the coat on her! All right, and I'm recording now for Real Talk. But first, I would like to uh, say welcome to a new patron, uh, Gerald Morris from uh, Two Piece of Podcast. Hi, Gerald. Welcome. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, what we're doing for the patrons. Alex, what are you plugging on our Extended Plugs patron segment? Julio, I over the holidays, I finally beat L.A. Noir, so I'll be talking about that game that's fucking almost eight years old at this point, but uh, was new to me and was awesome. And I know I had mentioned it previously on a couple different iterations of our plugs and 
having finally beaten it, giving it a full review and talking about why anyone who's a gaming fan or a movie fan should play through that game. This is the Black Dahlia game, right? Uh, so I thought. So there's a mission in the game where, uh, not a mission, but there's a section of the game where essentially you solve the Black Dahlia. And I'm such like a old school gamer. And by old school, I mean like just the PlayStation 1 generation and to a certain extent PS2 that I'm used to games being that length. So, and so when new games, they are so much longer than old games and so like i was like oh yeah i've played this for the bad of the time i should beat a video game and that accounted for maybe the first third of the game so like (laughs) i was like oh yeah i'm about to beat this uh nope that it kept going and going and going and going and going but yeah that's the there is a section of about the black dahlia i i will be talking on my on my now semi-regular attempts at throwing some light on movies that you might have not heard of uh i did watch an Amazon original, I think, from last year called uh, Sound of Metal. It stars Riz Ahmed, who's the guy from... Uh, see, you saw him recently on Nightcrawler. He was Jay Gyllenhaal's assistant. He oh, was yes. also the bad guy in Venom. And I want to say he was one of the pilots in Rogue One. So, you know, he's been around a while. But this might be... If the Academy pays attention to it, this might get him a, an acting nomination. Uh and are we even doing Oscars this year? Yeah, Steven Soderbergh is producing them. Okay. <laughs> He's going to have strippers. But actually, well, actually, before I get that, so Sound of Metal, yes, we're going to talk about that. It's basically about a, a, a drummer, very apropos of our last episode when we covered Whiplash. Uh, it's a drummer uh, for a metal band, and he loses hearing. He starts losing his hearing, and it's basically about his journey dealing with that. It's fascinating uh right at two hours i i think that it's it's a very interesting movie so we'll talk about that and then speaking of the oscars alex and kind of spurred by this titanic enterprise that you got me in i sent you the link last night to billy crystal's uh, opening song for the oscars i think it was the 70th, oh, yes. 70th uh ceremony and uh, you know where he sung about titanic that was that was billy crystal's shtick uh, that he would always open with a song in the song would like recount the, the nominees. But I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that and just like the Billy Crystal years in general, because you replied uh, to that text and it kind of, you know, your response made me think, okay, we're kind of on the same wavelength when we, when it comes to the Billy Crystal hosting. So I lay noir sound of metal, Billy Crystal hosting the Oscars back in the day. Also, if you're a patron, of course, you get whatever doesn't make it into this episode, because sometimes we we always, not sometimes, always go on longer and we have to cut some stuff. So if this sounds like anything you want to listen to, all the extra Contrarian stuff, just go to our Patreon. It's at patreon.com slash Contrarian Prime and uh, join everybody else there that's having fun. And now let's go to Real Talk. And we've arrived. Titanic. What more can there be said? Goodbye. Titanic. (laughs) It's fucking Titanic. I was surprised it's only 89%, but then you immediately brought into my mind that, yeah, the the reviews from the 3D re-release probably affected that. Likely. Possibly. Titanic. 
like honestly speaking, has there been a bigger movie in our lifetime? I know movies have made more money, but has there been a bigger movie that had like that was like a cultural happening? And you know, when we did Blues Ormus Color, I used that phrase minor cultural happening because that's what that movie <laughs> felt like. No, no, no. This was a full on major cultural happening. And the amount of money it made at the time, I know that if, like by inflation, Gone with the Wind is still like the biggest movie ever. Getting away from my original question. Julio, have we lived I mean, through it, a bigger movie than this? Yes, we have. And it was from the same director. It was called Avatar. But, no, I understand <laughs> that made more money, but like, you know what I'm trying to ask. You're just being a cock right now. You're being a, a real cow right now. <laughs> uh, In no way did Avatar make anywhere near the global footprint that Titanic did. Well, it certainly didn't turn... Uh, Charismatic Enigma, Sam uh, Worthington, Sam Worthington into the next Leo DiCaprio, but maybe it didn't want to. <laughs> oh, you know, they do say that the the era of the movie star is pretty much over. And oh, is that what they say? Is that what they yeah, say to make themselves feel better? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, like I, I don't know. I think they're talking about like Will Smith, Tom Cruise. They may be the last of their kind, and. Now you don't get Scientologists. Can... <laughs> uh, I can't come up with any other examples. Who else can like just open a movie almost no matter what? Is Bob Downey in that category? I don't know how his Doctor Doolittle Tom Hanks remake did. Hanks, maybe, maybe Hanks. Downey Jr. If he has the MCU behind him, but on his own, I don't know about that. I would say Denzel, but yeah, he's he did some stinkers. Like what was that movie Book of Eli? That proved them all wrong. <laughs> uh, well, but they were talking about, you know, forget about quality. They were just talking about the the idea that you could open a movie just because you had a certain actor or actress on it. Oh. That, that was enough. Yeah, but that's not the talent's fault. That's uh, that, uh, that. Look, we're going to be here long enough talking about Titanic. I'm not going to get into a discussion about that, about this. <laughs> well, well, what I'm saying is, yeah, Sam Worthington can't open a movie. <laughs> There is no comparison to Sam Worthington and Leonardo DiCaprio's acting ability. Like that's that is insulting to Leonardo DiCaprio's acting ability <laughs> to say that Sam Worthington is comparable to him. Look, uh, I'll just give him I'll give him the Kate Hudson argument, which is that we just don't know. We're just <laughs> we're we just waiting for the right project for him oh, to no. blossom. We know. Um <laughs> But fucking speaking of Kate, Kate Winslet's going to be an Avatar too. So I mean, it all comes full circle. But no, oh okay. my god, I think yeah. I knew that and I'd forgotten, and now I'm excited all over again. Oh, stop. Okay, being genuine, like what movies come to mind? Like the only one I could think of was The Dark Knight of movies that we've lived through that have been okay in our like conscious minds because maybe pulp fiction would be up there too because that's definitely a movie that changed pop culture especially in like the cinematic realm forever but yes i'm trying to think of things that like i was conscious to because like i said i remember titanic coming out as a kid and i remember all the big beats that we talked about and the only other one i could really come close to thinking about was the dark knight uh, again, I'm not speaking from necessarily just a box office perspective, which, but to both of those, they both made over a billion dollars. Well, I have an answer, Alex, but you're not going to like it. And that is Avengers Endgame. <laughs> and this time I'm not being 
cheeky. I'm, I'm, I'm serious. It was. I mean, you were disconnected you... from it, but I think that okay to to all the people that were cued in on what was happening with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it was that thing, you yeah. know. And and to many, like it's like there's gonna be. I think a lot of people are gonna talk about their cinematic experiences as like before Avengers Endgame and after Avengers Endgame, you know, it's like, oh, it had this build up and I mean it's not the exact same experience as Titanic, but if you're talking about movies that kinda like captured the zeitgeist and had everybody anticipating things and, and people came out But that movie know, wouldn't changed. exist if it wasn't for Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy. Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm not saying that that, that Nolan's trilogy is not part of it. I mean I, I think that Dark Knight is also like one of those and and yeah, and I wasn't saying like the entire run of the Marvel movies. I'm just saying that Avengers Endgame kind of feels like one of those, you know, watermarks, just because it solidified, I guess, something that that a lot of people already knew or already suspected. You know, it's like if it had been a disaster, much like if Titanic had been a disaster, and a lot of people feared that it could have been, then it, it would have changed Cameron's career probably Leo's career, Kate Winslet's career. Uh, and the same thing, like if they dropped the ball with Avengers Endgame, I, I think that you would be looking at, at a different landscape, you know, as far as movies go. So I would say that kind of comes close, but I also, I can't really judge because I, like when Titanic like came out in t- Titanic throughout the years, I mean, it hasn't really like rocked my world the way that it has rocked the worlds of all the people that truly love it, like you. So, so maybe if you describe your experience yeah, with no, Titanic, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is like changed pop culture forever. Like I'm not, like I'm not saying it's just a big movie that was good. There were a lot of bad Marvel movies that led into Avengers Endgame. That that's, you know, it, the Dark Knight at least had something to come before it. Titanic the really Joel had Schumacher nothing. Schumacher movies. <laughs> Titanic really had nothing. So I challenge your point on that. Again, though, if you want to listen to our Avengers Endgame episode, there is a, a very spirited and passionate discussion about that. <laughs> and I'm not going to take that away from Julio, even though I disagree wholly with that take. Because can you tell me a line in Avengers Endgame that's going to be stamped in the pop culture zeitgeist for decades to come? By people that like Avengers Endgame? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, no, no, no. You're missing my point. Then you're you're missing. My well, no, point. yeah. Okay, I, I, I'll I'll give you this. I mean, Titanic is more like anybody can enjoy Titanic if they're going to enjoy Titanic. Versus, you know, in order to enjoy Avengers Endgame, you have to be in on it. Now, again, I, I may have not made my point clear from the get go. So, example, uh, that picture of John Travolta and Samuel Jackson pointing their guns. Everyone can identify what that is. Uh, I'm the king of the world. Everyone can identify what that is. It's you know that old thing back in the day of Muhammad Ali. They took his picture into the jungle with people that had no idea what television or newspapers were, and they could say, "Oh yeah, that's Muhammad Ali. I know who that is." That I'm saying this movie like anywhere in the world can be identified immediately, uh, whereas there's only few movies that can be that way. I guess was the point I was trying to make, and especially during our lifetime. I understand, yes. For better or for worse, and it is for the worst, uh, Avengers Endgame is the highest grossing movie ever in history. Um, I, I mean, it's fitting. James Cameron I mean, was I the think guy that, that raised the bar so long. I think if you're going to make the argument for The Dark Knight, then it would apply 
to Avengers Endgame in the sense that, uh, you know, I would say if you if you go to like I don't know a jungle in the Amazon and you tell somebody there, do you know how I got these cars? You probably have about as much of a chance of them like knowing what you're talking about as if you showed them a picture of Captain America holding Thor's hammer. Yeah, you know, my, like, my Ali example probably was misplaced, but it was just more or less to stress the point of like universality of this is recognizable anywhere. I would I would argue that Heath Ledger as the Joker, just as a visual, is more iconic and recognizable than anything from Avengers Endgame or the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But we we would be here all night if that was the discussion at hand. So <laughs> I would but, say one last thing, like Thanos snapping his fingers. It's as iconic as Billy Zane screaming. I hope you, I enjoy, hope you your enjoy your time together. <laughs> but, but then like, I, I'll immediately be like, no, no, but that's not from Endgame. That's from Infinity War where he snaps his fingers. So I, I, I give you that though. <laughs> that that my takeaway from that whole journey was that's probably the most iconic visual from that entire little fucking series, whatever you want to call it. But it's a meme. I mean, everything is a meme today. But yeah, yeah, exactly. You get my point. You get our point. And Julio, yeah, just to make sure I'm not discrediting your opinion. I think it's wrong, <laughs> but I'm not discrediting it. You get what we're trying to say here. We're dealing with a movie in extremely rarefied air with titanic and you know it's not one of these movies you know greener grass even howard the duck you know these movies we've done recently of like Fuck, greener why would you bring greener grass because i'm saying to any what discussion I'm, what i'm saying right now is those are the movies that we when we do this podcast we have to say well if you've seen it we don't have to operate on any assumptions with this. If you haven't seen Titanic at this point in your life, you're not going to see it. You have done. You have made some conscious objection to seeing it, and you're not going to. You know, the, the grace of accident. I didn't see it until my 20s, and that was just a rare happenstance. It's it's near impossible to have not seen it. And even then, having not seen it, I knew like exactly all the the big beats of it. I want to get right into it, Julio. <laughs> These people that didn't like it, besides the fact that it's really silly and overly predictable and really cheesy and riddled with plot holes, what did they have to say about it? All right. I got four rotten quotes from the Rotten Tomatoes website. And again, this is kind of a mix from original release and then re-release in 3D. Uh, so I'll start with Felix Vasquez Jr. from Cinema Crazed, who says, Director James Cameron takes one of his most beloved historical incidents and transforms it into a McDonald's product. Oh, fuck off. Was there a McDonald's tie-in with the Titanic release a la Batman Returns? Damn it. I was going to say, yeah, they had the <laughs> the glasses you could buy like Batman Returns, but you beat me to it. Uh, no, not to my knowledge. We'll get to the main thing I remember about this movie right after your little quotes here. I hope for the the Victor Garber action figure. You squeeze his legs and tears come down his eyes. (laughs) You press the button on his back. I wish I could have built a stronger ship for you, Rose. (laughs) Ed Whitfield from the Outre says, forget women and children. What about truth and realism first? Okay. Okay. (laughs) I never saw a disclaimer 
either at the beginning or the end of the movie saying based or inspired <laughs> by a true story. It does like the little title screen, like the beginning of The Strangers, based on a true story. You know what movie <laughs> really stuck to like historical realism and accuracy? Lincoln. And that movie was boring. <laughs> Motherfucker included. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that movie's fine. Kenneth Turan from Los Angeles Times says, What really brings on the tears is Cameron's insistence that writing this kind of movie is within his abilities. I think there would be a large sum of the global population that would argue with that. Yes. But I, I think also that we can agree that... that Writing dialogue is not James Cameron's forte. No, 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 no. He could have he could have used a a helping hand here, like maybe give Sorkin a pass, make the make those walks Jesus. and talks pop. An Aaron, Aaron Sorkin <laughs> Titanic. Just them walking from one end of the ship to the other, just talking about politics. Kathy Bates just pacing back and forth in her escape ship about like you know coming up with the. <laughs> Naming all like the 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 metrics of how many people can fit in there, <laughs> and finally, Brandon Judell from Critics Incorporated slash America Online says, "If when you see this film, you believe it's credible, God bless you and your unfortunate offspring with their damaged gene pool." Fuck was, you, Brandon Judell. Yeah, that's <laughs> that is uncalled for. That is way too deep. That, that that just felt personal. His ex-wife liked Titanic. That was the problem. That there you go. That's yeah, the ex-wife that cheated on him with his brother. That's what happened. <laughs> they yeah, had Titanic but, playing in the background. That's you I had never thought of that, but you pointed that out and I la- my reaction was to laugh, but you're right. At no point in this does it say based on a true story. It's like a cover <laughs> band. It's like, hey, yeah, it could have been a different boat called Titanic. You know, we don't know. Uh <laughs> Cameron's going like, I think you guys know this one. And he says, <laughs> James Cameron just steps up to the mic. Sing along if you know it. Jesse <laughs> is a friend. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So before we just get into it, uh, Julio, we forgot to cover this in the first portion. How'd you watch it? Oh, yeah. Uh, so I thought I was going to have to watch it through uh, our old friend, newer friend, IMDb TV. And I was like, my God, it's going to be four hours with commercial Oof, breaks. Yeah. But thankfully, it was on Stars, And I do have Stars through Amazon Prime. So I just watched it uninterrupted, three hours and 15 minutes. And it looked great. It was just me and the cats in the living room. I was telling you before we started recording that my wife had taken the dog to visit uh, her mom. So uh, it was it was great. That was probably the best part of the experience. I have the Blu-ray, the original Blu-ray release of it, which came out shortly after the 3D release, uh, which obviously, yeah, it's surprising that it took that long to get a Blu-ray release for it. But uh, I don't like the cover is the 3D poster. I, I think the original poster for Titanic is just so fucking incredible, and I wish it was that. But hey. What's it? What's that look like, the 3D one? I don't remember. Uh, it's like... It says Titanic, and it's the ship diagonal as it's going down, and then it's like Jack has Rose, like his arm around her. It's kind of like when they were, uh, you know, getting to go down with the ship type thing. Um, oh. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's nothing like bad. It's not like the Drive Blu-ray art, because I've always talked about how terrible <laughs> that is. 
You know what I mean, though. The ti- you remember the Titanic poster, the ship with like. Oh the, yeah, yeah. It's... Them looking like they're back to back. Yep, I dated a girl in college that had that movie poster on her wall. I remember times just laying in her bed, just like it was um, above her headboard. So when I would be laying down and looking up, it would be kind of like in you know upside down from where I was. And I just remember looking at that so often. Uh, ah, ah, to be young and weird memories that you have from those times. But would she ask you to uh to draw her like one of your French girls? No, no, nah, she she was a sweet girl. Her apartment, she had one of those weird like efficiency apartments, and that's one of the main things I remember about it. She had like stuff all over the place, but I always remember she had that Titanic poster because it was um it is the type of thing a nerd like me would remember because it wasn't the theatrical poster; it was the one from like a blockbuster. Like, you know, come rent Titanic. <laughs> and it was it's just embedded into my mind. God bless it. Okay, so Titanic was released on December 19th of 1997. Had a budget, as we kind of spoke to in Contrarian's Corner, of massively over budget. Almost by $100 million. A $200 million budget. Worked out all right, though. Two... <laughs> Over $2 billion in a box office return. And that, of course, does factor in the 3D re-release, which earned uh, a little under $350 million worldwide. In 2017, it was preserved in the United States National Film Registry. It is a movie that was, you know, I, I try to consolidate this as much as we can just for the sake of you and I talking about this. Because a lot of times we'll do research and there is... A veritable endless amount of research to be done on this film. Um, but it's a movie that just kept going in production and kept costing more and more money. And people thought it was like going to be at a certain point, this is going to bomb. It's too long. It's cost too much. Mm-hmm. This is going to put a studio out of business. James Cameron's never going to work again. It's just. All those things are so funny to consider the way we started this portion of the podcast was, has there been a bigger movie than this ever? You know, just all all the things that went into it. And like I said in the first portion, I remember it being on the marquee for nearly an entire year at a local movie theater. It's uh, It came out on VHS while it was still in the movie theaters, which was unheard of in those times. Because, you know, back in those days, and Julio, right. you got you got shit later in Peru. But, like, um, <laughs> no, I, I wasn't even trying to disparage, but you've told me, like, things got there later than they did in America. And so the expectation in America, something would have to be out of the movie theaters for, like, nine months or even like a year before the VHS. So the idea that like I was seeing commercials for Titanic, the VHS coming out while still in the theaters was like, you know, it was mind blowing. Like I said, the only other time I can remember seeing that as a kid was Toy Story 2. And then of course, might as well just cover this right now. Go ahead and get out of the way before we get into the movie. The Celine Dion song, My Heart Will Go On. James Cameron was adamant about not including any song in the film, not even over the closing credits, since he often finds they don't fit tonally. Composer James Horner, however, was struggling to end the movie on a strong emotional note and thought a song would be the best way to do it. He secretly arranged with lyricist Will Jennings and singer Celine Dion to write My Heart Will Go On using the central musical theme of the movie as a melody. A demo tape was recorded with most of 20th Century Fox top brass in attendance who loved the song. Horner then presented the recording to Cameron, who responded very favorably, although he had no idea who the singer was. When told it was fellow Canadian Celine Dion, he responded, oh, she's big, right? 
He included the song <laughs> over the closing credits and went on to win the Academy Award for Best Original Song. So the thing I took away from that that I never knew was that melody that plays throughout the movie existed before that song was written. Every That's time crazy. I had, yeah, every time I had watched the movie up until this viewing, I thought they got that song and then inserted that melody into the movie. So that kind of like changes it all, you know? It's like, no, they already thought of this, and then at the end, mm-hmm. it's kind of like the, the, the coup de grace. Julio, do you remember the music video for My Heart Will Go On? Part of it. I remember Celine Dion singing to the camera. Yes. So that, that tells me that, you know, I've seen it. And uh, was the sea behind her? Was the ship behind her? Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's scenes from the movie. Yes, I, I, I'm like, I have dimples right now just smiling. You're, you're ex- <laughs> I was so hoping you would have known what I was talking about but yeah that, that's a, she's in a white dress the, uh, the she's got like the you know the shop fan behind the camera that's blowing your yep. hair and yeah she's I don't know if she's on the bow but the ship's behind her and god you know if there was like a a boy scout a sash that you got badges on for growing <laughs> up in the 90s being able to describe the my heart will go on music video would definitely be on there but it doesn't uh it doesn't go the extra mile like Right, it's always just it just cuts to scenes from the movie, and it yes. has Celine Dion in the, in the environment. But you don't get like Billy Zane like playing the flute or something. <laughs> no, it, it we've given uh, in our Joel Schumacher in memoriam. We talked about how amazing his <laughs> Batman and Robin and Batman Forever music videos were. We don't get Seal singing in front of the you know Celine Dion's not belting out in front of the bat signal or anything like that. And, <laughs> in front of the iceberg. Yeah, that is again. A song that like this movie huge became parody people started to revere it in like a nostalgic sense became parody again and now we're coming back again to where that song's like a great love song oh you think so i was gonna ask you give give me your your rating your letter rating for the song uh it's a great love song and i it's one of those things of uh, i don't know I, I know the entire country of Canada may not like this, but I that, that gave Celine Dion an entire career. I know she's a talented vocalist, and... Mm-hmm. She, uh, her husband, I know, passed away, and she always had like she was prominent in the industry. But when you make my heart will go on, it, there's nothing more you can do after that. And I know she's tried to. I remember she had some Vegas special where she did this god awful cover of uh, uh, "All Night Long" by AC/DC, and Ooh. it's like it's not like Springsteen. There's not a catalog there. There's not 80 <laughs> songs I want to hear you play. <laughs> Celine Dion, My Heart Will Go On or Nothing. And I guess that's the thing. Growing up, and by the time my I was old enough to go to school dances, that song had already kind of gone. It was no longer in vogue. Oh, so you haven't you haven't slow danced My Heart Will Go On? I may have. I don't know. There's There's been many nights at bars where I, I got ahead a bit too many and put ridiculous songs on the, the jukebox. Um, I used to get a big kick out of There was this redneck bar I used to go to that I would uh, put... Um, all these things I have done by the killers on and play it like three times in a row. Cause I, I thought that was funny, but 
So I'm sure there's been places I've gone where I've put My Heart Will Go On. I mean, what other great love movie songs would you t- would you put in contention with that? Oh, no, that's yeah, I've I I need preparation in order to answer that kind of question. <laughs> okay, so I guess I'll refrain. Do you not think it's a great love song from a movie perspective? I I don't like it. <laughs> so that's but that's a different question. I I think that oh, it yeah, fits. I mean I'm I'm not going to go on jogs to this song or anything, but when it comes on it fills me with kind of a warming feeling. Oh no, it does. I kind of cringe. I it's but it's I don't know. I think I never got through the stage of wow, this song is overplayed. I'm ready to be done with it. You know, I never I never completed the cycle to where we got to love it again. Oh, okay. Uh, so so to me it was always stuck there and uh uh, maybe if I liked Titanic more, or if I was like a bigger fan, then it would bring fonder memories. But to me, it was just like, oh, it's that Celine Dion song, and it's just like you know, if it were to, not that anybody listens to the radio these days, but if it were to come on the radio, I would change the station. I'm not gonna listen to the end, and I'm certainly not putting it on a jukebox unless I'm trying to like annoy somebody or if I want to see you dance, I guess. But on its own, I yeah, I I don't. It doesn't do it for me. So. I still, obviously, I agree with everything you said. Like, I give Celine Dion props, especially now that I know that the melody was there ahead of time. <laughs> it's not something that she came with and then they put on the movies, but rather she had to, she came in and had to work with something that had already been conceived. So that's, I, I think that that's actually a, a very different challenge. But the song itself, I, I'm not, I'm not a, at my heart will go on person. Yeah. It See, does not surprise me that you are, though, because as we've said many times in this show, you are the romantic one. Yeah, I definitely don't have this on vinyl or anything. I don't want to act, make it sound like <laughs> I'm, I'm front row with it. Uh, but the way the movie Vegas, closes... baby, to Cecil <laughs> <in> the, <laughs> the way the movie closes with like the, you know, the overture leading into it, ah, chef's kiss. But yeah, reading that, it made me garner a a bigger appreciation for it as far as other just random tidbits like i said there's a lot of things we could discuss about this movie so i just want to hit some quick bullet points uh at 200 million dollars the movie that the budget for the movie it cost more than the actual titanic which i thought was funny um (laughs) in the movie the two hours and 40 minutes that are spent on the titanic is how long it took it to sink which makes me think that james cameron's just like at one point, he was like, fuck it. We got to drag it out. Just go out there and spit. We need more things on, on film. Uh, Johnny Depp was offered the role of Jack. He turned it down. He considers it a big regret. I understand why. Although, I don't know. Johnny Depp and Kate Winslet, that'd be some weird chemistry. Yeah, I don't see it. Robert De Niro was offered the role of Captain Smith, but turned it down due to gastrointestinal infection at the time, which, again... God, you know, De Niro is one of the finest actors we've ever had, but thinking of him, Iceberg, I don't think so. Yeah, I couldn't do it. I, I think he would just overpower the movie because it's such a it's a small part and he's such a big actor. Yes, he would have been a big actor in 97, whereas one of the things that makes this movie work so well is like Kathy Bates, I think, is... Unless I'm wrong, Kathy Bates would have been the, like the highest named actor in the movie. And part of what makes this movie work is watching it now. It's like, oh, God, Leonardo DiCaprio, Kate Winslet. Holy shit. Billy Zane. But it, 
But at the time, Cameron was smart enough to kind of make everyone seem on an even keel. And uh, Bill Paxton also, to to be fair. Um, But with those, like, bigger-name actors with minimal roles, it kind of... It made it for an interesting mix. And with to exactly to your point, with Robert De Niro in there as, like, watching it as a viewer, you would have been like, well, let's go back and see what the captain's doing. Right. And then you would have been disappointed at the end. You'd be like, really? They got De Niro for this? <laughs> Could have gotten Kaitel. So I got this. Uh, I found this on IMDb in my research. And like I said, man, if you want to, I don't know of a, a movie that has a more extensive history than this, or well, more documented history than this. But this was something that I had heard about. And there's also an urban legend about like uh, one of the like the closing scene where they're all in the water. There's an urban legend about like food poisoning or something where a bunch of the extras got uh, sick um, and they had to drain the tank and refill it. A lot of the budget for this was Cameron just wanted more and more water like um, the scene. Uh, shit, I can't remember the actor or the scene, the specific scene, but like one of the actors, the doors are like at the seams, it's starting to bend and the water's coming through. And then it's like a big tidal wave that washes the extra away. Mm-hmm. Um, when they originally shot that, it was originally with a 40 gallon shoot, 40 gallons of water. And Cameron's like, no, we need more. And so they had to do it with a 120 gallon shoot. And like shit like that was constantly happening where it was just upping the budget over and over again. But back to my point, there's an urban legend. I, I, not sure if this has been confirmed anywhere. If it is, I, I missed it. But of like a bunch of the extras got sick, maybe from food poisoning or something, and uh, released in the tank that they were filming the conclusion. And so Jesus they had to drain it and refill Christ. it, and yeah, and that that cost a lot of money. But what I did see here, I think this may be mixed with this. The urban legend uh, may be kind of you know cross pollinated. With uh, on the final night of shooting in Nova Scotia, one or more criminals mixed the dissociative hallucinogen PCP angel dust into the clam chowder that was served to the cast and crew. Eighty people were taken ill and more than 50 taken to the hospital. Eighty seven year old Gloria Stewart was fortunately spared because she had dined elsewhere. Initially, shellfish poisoning was suspected. But when James Cameron noticed that one member of the crew was demanding to see a priest, the director of photography was leading a conga line, and the assistant director was talking to Cameron over a walkie-talkie while looking straight at him. She even stabbed him in the cheek with a pen when he brought this up to her. He realized that the chowder had been spiked with an hallucinogenic drug. In absence of a purging agent, he forced himself to vomit before the drug took full effect. His bloodshot eyes afterwards frightened other crew members into thinking it was another side effect of the drug. Bill Paxton felt listless for two weeks after the incident. And then uh, parenthetically, although PCP's primary effects only last a few hours, the drug itself can take eight or more days to completely metabolize in the body. The culprits were never caught. Some disgruntled crew members who had been fired were suspected, but Cameron himself has always believed it was an ex-crew member who had an argument with the caterer and subsequently poisoned the chowder in an attempt to get the caterer fired as well. That is insane. (laughs) (laughs) I just, that's crazy. It's just so silly. Like, you could have killed Gloria Stewart. (laughs) Yeah. She would have gone out thinking that James Cameron was a dragon or something. (laughs) But, yeah, and, I mean, like, the other things, uh, uh, to me, are well-known 
like the big drama, like Kate Winslet almost drowned and she got hypothermia and she wanted to quit and all that shit. And yeah, it sounds like Leo's experience on the film was a bit easier than Kate's, but unfortunately that's kind of often the case with a lot of male to female ratio on film. But hey man, that's kind of what I'm bringing as far as the fun, trivial <laughs> stuff about the movie. <laughs> it's time to get to it. Julio, what's your beef with Titanic? It's just not good, man. No, I'm oh, kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, it's all right. It's fine. I, I honestly, my big, my inner conflict, my big just introspection has been trying to figure out why I just don't like it as much as everybody else. It's watching it this time. I found myself having a good time. Just, you know, like three hours and 15 minutes. I keep mentioning it, but really I didn't have a problem with the runtime. I watched the whole thing straight through. I laughed. I was kind of in awe when the, once the the iceberg hit. I I felt sad when when Leo died. I mean, it was just as much as I wanted to kind of like be too good for the love story. It still got me. I mean, it's it 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 worked. But I guess I guess that's it though. Like when it's over, I don't feel shaken to my core or you know i haven't had like a transcendent experience uh which feels like it happens with you know most people that truly love this movie like they they sit through the three hours and 15 minutes and they come out you know just exhilarated whereas like i sit through it and i'm like well i'm glad it didn't suck because it was three hours and 15 minutes it could have been so so bad if it wasn't you know watchable but i I don't know. I don't know. I, I I think it it has to be the love story. It has to be that I just don't connect to it on a level where I where I'm just like they're suffering with them the entire time. You know, and they're like I like the actors. I you know everybody knows that I, I love Kate say, Winslet. Well documented. <laughs> yes. Uh, Kate Winslet fan Julio Oliveira. Yeah, and I, I think DiCaprio is great. I think he's really good in this. Uh, oh really? I, I to me he's kind of like I for years I was always like oh man. You know, of the acting nominations, he didn't get one. You know, Kate Winslet and Gloria Stewart got one. And I was like, Leo should have got one. Then I was rewatching it. And I mean, he's still oh. Leo. He's just wet behind the ears. When you put it that way, I don't think I would have nominated any of them. You know, I think that they're just Gloria Stewart in particular. I mean, she, I, I kind of mentioned it in Contrarian's Corner, but to me, it's not like she does anything. No, 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 no. I, I, the, I was saying, like, my. Back in my uh, younger thought process was, man, they got nominated and he didn't. But yeah, I, I, if I can kind of guess where you're going, Gloria Stewart was fine, but best supporting actress. Come on, dog. Right. It's like, what are you saying about the playing field uh, in '97? You know, <laughs> are you telling me you couldn't find like its stronger performances? I know we know it's not like the Oscars goes looking for for that kind of stuff. I mean, you know half the time if not more often they just go for something that's somewhat popular but still i don't know it just she of uh, course lost to kim basinger in la confidential la confidential i think it was the only oscar that la confidential got that i'm not sure of i shouldn't no no, no it, yeah it got uh, best screenplay best adapted uh, screenplay. adapted yeah yeah because yeah. uh, I, I was looking at this oscar lineup i was like we just talked about this shit recently and then uh because we did goodwill hunting <laughs> <laughs> uh but yeah i, I mean leo leo is fine i he's very charismatic 
I don't, you know, it's what he does. Both him and Kate Winslet do what they can do with with those characters. I just think that really, it's not just, they're not very interesting, you know? And I think that maybe that's why I can't really get into the love story more. I'm just like, he's like, of course he's, I mean, I want to call him a bum now that we're in real talk, but you know, he's just like an artist that just travels the world. I got a word and- for that, Jules. It's a bum. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she is just like the stuck up you know she's not even a rich girl you know she's like a girl that's going to be rich but what do they talk about you know it's like they're glad that that the ship hit the iceberg because they didn't have to find out how bland each other was it sounds petty because obviously i'm in the minority everybody buys a hundred percent into this or most people buy a hundred percent into this relationship i they don't care you know it, it's but to me, the most interesting part of their story is once the iceberg hits, you know, because that's just like, holy shit, once you get into the logistics and now that we're in real talk, I can really say that I think it's really cool. It's a horrible tragedy, but it's really cool that there is an explanation, you know, you can see like the building blocks towards how all this got fucked up, that yeah. uh, the hubris, you know, that they didn't have as many uh, lifeboats as they should have. And the guy, I don't know if this is true or not but you know the guy that was kind of egging the captain on to go faster and uh just the overall sense that the crew had that nothing bad could ever happen to this ship like that stuff to me is more way more fascinating than kate winslet's struggles to get from under her mother and fiance's boots you know and but you don't think that makes it so much more fascinating and like a a true homage and you know, a callback to the times of Hollywood greatness that it, it is about this real tragic event, but this love story happens in the midst of it. It's, well, um, I, I think that it would, if, if I could really get into that love story, but I, I think that that's just, that's it that I can't, because I don't find them interesting. You know, they're just puppets of this love story that Cameron concocted to put on the, on that ship, but it's not, you know, they have nothing going on. I, just the more I talk about it, the more I realize that it's just because I have nothing to say about their characters. It, and I was I was serious in Contrast Corner. To me, the most interesting people in the ship are the ones that are just around the story. You know, like the guy that shoots himself after after killing a bunch of people. That guy's story, that's interesting. You don't find like brilliance to that though? Like a person like you that uh, talks about this movie and says, well, the main story of it doesn't work for me, but like all these things around it do. It's like... Well, I, I don't know that I would call brilliance. I mean, to me, that's kind of like the the drawback. You know, if I was saying, hey, the main story is interesting and the people around it also are interesting, then that would be great. But to me, when you're devoting most of the runtime to a relationship that doesn't really make me feel alive, then it's just, thank God that they got actors that could really carry it because otherwise it just it would just be dead. I mean, of course, I guess you could have the greatest script and if you had... Two actors that didn't have chemistry, then you'd be in trouble as well. But I don't well, know. I, I, you know, we we talk far too often about movies on this that we say this exact same thing that you're saying. We agree upon, like, oh, no, they should have extrapolated on this portion of it. But a movie like this, an, an epic, and my God, this thing was supposed to be like four and a half hours when it first started, and you know, thank God <laughs> for that. But uh, or thank God for the studio just. You know, putting the shot collar on Cameron and bringing him back in, but so we don't, we don't need the romantic subplot between Bill Paxton and Gloria Stewart's granddaughter. <laughs> the original. Uh, oh, I thought. I'm sorry. I'm 
my mind stopped at Gloria Stewart and it was just Bill Paxton <laughs> and Gloria Stewart just going full board. <laughs> but I think to that point, so you did not watch this and not get something from it. I think what you're saying is the main portion of it didn't work, but the surrounding things did. And I don't know. I, I'm, I may be trying to just find excuses because I like it so much. But to me, that's a, that's a much different statement saying that about a movie that's three hours and 15 minutes than a movie that's 90 minutes long. So let me ask you this. If we hadn't done this for the podcast, would you ever have seen a situation where you sat through this movie start to finish again? Oh, no. <laughs> oh really i've done it okay. twice in my life already i when i watched it the first time and then uh when i screened the 3d re-release and and that was enough i mean and to be fair this time i had a much better time than when i screened it when i screened it i was restless i remember you know the second time around because i already knew everything and uh i remember just feeling the runtime and this time oh, wow. i think because i went in expecting that same experience i was pleasantly surprised when actually the movie went through pretty like i was engaged you know i was uh i think part of it was also that i was freely allowing myself to enjoy anything that i thought was wrong with it so instead of irritating me i was just like oh this is funny and i'll just write it down and it's not a, a runtime issue this movie could be 90 minutes and if it was basically the same design i'd be like i don't really need to see it again like technically you know once once it hits the iceberg I do feel like it ramps up, you know, beyond and the, that first reveal shot uh, of the boat after it's like when it starts sinking, I had forgotten about that. You know what I'm talking about? Where it like pans out mm-hmm. and you finally see the, the bow of it starting to sink. I was like, Oh, I had forgotten yeah. about that. I, I okay. did continue. I'm I mean, sorry. Th- I keep th- cutting that. I would watch actually, if it was a 90 minute movie that started right before they hit the iceberg. And you need to watch about- a, a night to remember, dude. Oh, yeah, you've told me, right? That's set in the Titanic, too. Yeah. The the movie from the 50s. But yeah, to me, that would be more... Because that's really where my interests lie. Have uh, Leo be the captain, and Kate Winslet can be one of the... A member of the band, one of the people that's playing until the very end. And now now you have a movie. See, but, but if I, right at the moment of impact. <laughs> man, we're divided. But it's fine, because I'm explaining why it doesn't work. But like, I feel way. like the things I'm going to say about this, you're just going to scoff at. and like I'm not going to scoff, because I think it's perfectly understandable if you connect to it in a way that I don't. If you're telling me that the love story works for you in a way that it doesn't work for me, then that explains everything. No, but like my thought on it, this is one of the greatest movies ever made. <laughs> like yeah, uh, we're not going to agree there, <laughs> That's my leading, you know, that's a a big matzo ball to put out there, as Jerry Seinfeld would say, (laughs) but, like, it's big, it's loud, it's dumb, it's sappy, it's riddled with inaccuracies, plot holes, common sensibility, inaccuracies, you know, all those things. It's Titanic. It, It is what people say about it. It was a movie that conquered the world. Rightfully so. And like I say, it's, I think the biggest issue with this movie is people ended up taking it entirely too seriously. And a problem with that, and I will admit, is the domination it had with awards. And we talked about two, two years after this was when Shakespeare in Love came along. And obviously I did a long-winded diatribe about how that damaged the sanctity of everything. <laughs> 
that obviously came from a political perspective. Obviously, when we talk, I don't think that movie's that good. I don't think that movie's anywhere near as good as Titanic. But a movie like this, clearly being awarded for its technical achievements without really factoring in the storytelling of it, I think is what happened and soured a lot of people back in the day. The cause for re-release, you know, 15 years after the fact, I believe it was, was a generation that loved it, and rightfully so. And like I was saying, to me, this movie harkens back to the days of old Hollywood. And I don't even know if that's what James Cameron was going for. I think James Cameron just got obsessed with the Titanic. Uh, I think he got obsessed with the story, and he got into the, you know, he did some of that deep sea diving with it, and... Mm -hmm. I think this just became an obsession of his. But what this movie to me is, is an homage to classic Hollywood. It's like, here's this idea of the story. Here's these big extravagant sets. And obviously I am a huge proponent for practical effects. And this movie kind of uh, was cutting edge and broke a lot of molds for CGI, which means I should hate it <laughs> and I should demonize <laughs> it. But that kind of plays into it. It didn't rely on that. And that homage to old Hollywood of being, you know, using the cutting edge technology, you know, wizard of Oz fucking, uh, gone with the wind style stuff of here is what the most we are capable of doing right now is. And in the spirit of gone with the wind, it's, you know, a, a love story type thing in the end, it's just these two kindred spirits. So I appreciate it on that level. It's weird to have this discussion and with you in, in terms of like I've talked to people that like, oh, it sucks. It sucks. It's too sappy and it's stupid. <laughs> uh, you know, it's unrealistic. And just hearing you be like, yeah, it's okay. Uh, that's <laughs> that's even worse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's harder for me to accept than someone that doesn't like it. You know, I was watching it and that shot, for my money, dude, that shot where she's being lowered in the, the rescue boat, and oh, that's Jack's a great shot. And where the flare goes off overhead and like lights up her face while she's looking up. That's like a defining moment in American cinema. Like that. <laughs> it's right next to uh, the Nero. So are you talking to me? <laughs> yes. Like that, which obviously it speaks to the dialogue in this movie that the most iconic portion of it is something where nothing's spoken. Uh, because like you said, Sorkin-esque, this is not This is not a, a David Fincher production or anything like that. that. That may sound really melodramatic, but it's true. And this is all coming from my place, too, of knowing that this movie is just kind of silly and a really sappy love story. But everything about it works. And when the old bag gets on the, the deck and goes out and throws the fucking diamond overboard. yeah, I, I mean, that's another thing. If the movie has you, it has you. And that, that shit, like... I was like surprised. I started getting emotional when I was watching it last night and she came out and stood up and threw the, the diamond over when I, I watched it in two parts. I watched like the first 45 minutes and then last night at like 11, I was like, all right, well, I'm going to put this on and watch another hour and then I'll finish it in the morning. And I couldn't stop, you know, the cliche about a book. You can't put it down. Like I, I can't stop watching this different from movies that we've done on here. Like, you know, almost famous or Halloween or, you know, these movies we've done where I talk about like this deep emotional connection and, uh, you know, it's part of my being and embedded me. This movie is not that it's, I, I lived through it and I remember the cultural, you know, I use the Renaissance that it had earlier and just the echo it created, 
But as I've gotten older and I've watched this movie back, it's it's just fantastic. I think what soured it is a lot of the wrong things got overly celebrated about it. I think its tribute to old Hollywood is more what I appreciate than its actual visual effects. And I mm. think what got taken away from it was like <laughs> James Cameron, visual effects. That's all that matters. <laughs> 15 or whatever avatar came out uh 11 years from now you're gonna make this movie and it's gonna be all visual effects and it's back to like the the terminator discussion that we had with Chaz. james Cameron did not invent the science fiction movie and james Cameron did not invent the historical period piece nor did he you know invent the old person recounting a tale movie which he melds both of these together but that motherfucker knows how to make a movie for mainstream mass appeal his name is james and sometimes it works for me personally uh and sometimes it doesn't i think there's no comparison that this and t2 and the first terminator are not on par with like say avatar <laughs> and uh, i i don't want there to be any uh confusion i do not hold titanic on the same plateau that i hold terminator terminator 2 that's good to hear yes. <laughs> i was getting worried <laughs> no i you know when i say it's one of the greatest movies ever made it it's that because it was meant to be that i don't mean that he made it like he made terminator 2 it's not a movie that like every time you watch it is just mind-blowingly great i know that's kind of really almost shakespearean to say it was meant to be that but it feels like it feels like Titanic's destiny from the time he started this movie to when it was released that its its place in the universe was to be this movie regarded as one of the best ever, even though the parts of it are kind of silly and wonky and come together in this really cattywampus way. When we give the grades out and shit like that, I'm still gonna act like it's one of the, the you know the, the upper echelon, the elite. But there there's tears to shit. There's 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 levels. It is just a perfect. Hollywood movie. I know some people listening to this will understand exactly what I mean when I say that. And other people will just be like, this guy's just rambling about nonsense, but it's <laughs> to me, it kind of epitomizes what twenties, thirties, forties, fifties style movies were and kind of supposed to be. And I love it. I don't even know if like the romance really connects with me. It, it really doesn't. I think it's the spitting scene is so stupid and like the like the whole you know prince and the popper type story only gets you so far i think that's you know maybe you don't even have to connect to it but it just as long as it doesn't make you cringe which i yes. as you were talking i was like that's my problem like i through a lot of those scenes i'm like low level cringing you know and and i know that's supposed to be i'm supposed to be into it you know i'm supposed to be buying their their connection and but a lot of it, I'm just like, oh god, don't just just move on to the next thing. Uh, do you remember the the first time you watched it? Cause you said that okay, so you'd had the the VHS tapes at home, but you didn't watch it until you were in your twenties. So, do you remember your reaction the first time you watched it? Not really. I I think I feel like I have some vague memory of us watching it at home, but like, if you're a boy, aside from the boobs, like until you're. <laughs> in your early twenties watching this movie is just, there's really no appeal to it. I guess maybe like the destruction of the, the, the boat crashing and whatnot, but uh, no, I don't really remember it. 
I remember I watched the 3D version of it. I went to back when I worked at the theater and I was closing and there was no one in a screening of it. And I went in there and watched it. It's just like I remember the first time I watched it of Sound Mind. I was just like, this is perfect. This is a <laughs> a perfect movie for what it's trying to be, because I think that's the biggest distinction to make for all the movies we do here where we talk about like, this is good. This is good. This is bad. This is bad. Uh, this movie would be good if it wasn't for this, that type of thing. At no point in this movie does it try to be anything that it isn't. This movie is exactly what it wants to be. And I think that's something we talk about so often, especially on this podcast where, uh, yeah, this movie like sucks, but then it tries to say this thing and it's kind of interesting, but it doesn't pull it off. Avatar is a great example to compare it to just because that's another James Cameron epic. It's like, what are what are you trying to say? Like, stop invading the rainforest, global warming. Like, what are you trying to do here? Titanic achieves everything it's trying to achieve. And, you know, again, in the James Cameron vein, T2 does the exact same thing. It just happens to be a much better movie. But it is... <laughs> For what this movie wants to be, which is an extremely simple movie that relies on base level love storytelling, visual effects, and emotion drawn off historical events, this movie succeeds on all of those levels. Um, I have three things I want to say. <laughs> <laughs> that sounded way too dramatic. No. Uh, number one, it, it's just I have to say that there are three so I don't forget. Number one is that. I am truly sorry that you've never experienced Titanic, watching Titanic in a packed auditorium, which is how I watched it the first time. Well, it was did in theaters clap? in Peru. We did the line, you know, we waited in line, we finally got in there, and it was just, I don't know how many people in there had already seen it, and they were on their second or their third watch, but there were clearly people that already knew the story, they knew everything, and uh, you could just feel the atmosphere charged with that says people are getting ready to cry you know what i mean like and it's yeah. just that entire final sequence with rose and jack in the water you know you could you kept hearing the sniffles and it was just it was charged you know and that's something that that to me is the most memorable takeaway from my titanic experience the first time i watched it and i've always i've never forgotten that that feeling because you don't get it very often you know it's like no yeah that's, yeah, that's awesome that you got that so that's 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 something cool. Number two is that when you were describing Titanic as like this awesome thing that doesn't make any sense, but it's awesome anyway, you know what you're describing? You're describing Roland Emmerich's Independence Day for me. And shout out to Patreon Dan Brennan because I know it's like his favorite movie. But it's a good one. It's But it's kind of like that same thing that you're saying, right? It's like this movie shouldn't, you know, it doesn't make sense, but it but it does. It works, you know? And to me, I mean, I can sit through Independence Day anytime and not because I, because I find it particularly believable or because I think it's necessarily uh, a good movie, but I think it's a very entertaining movie. I think that that's my problem with Titanic. I am not entertained. When Russell Crowe asks me if I'm entertained, I, I have to tell him that I'm not when I'm watching <laughs> Titanic. <laughs> and number three, have you seen Pearl Harbor? No. Because it tries so hard to do the the Titanic formula of like we're gonna focus on this epic historical event, but we're gonna throw in a love story to carry you through it. And as much as Whoa. I I'm not crazy about Titanic, I mean I can tell you Pearl Harbor actually doesn't work at all. <laughs> well, if Michael Bay wanted to be one thing in his life, it was James Cameron. So 
that makes sense. <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is like I I do acknowledge that there's a lot of things that Titanic does well, and I fully give it props for for being what it is, you know, in 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 doing what it did and all that stuff. It's just that I admire it. I just don't, you know, I just don't enjoy watching it as much as as its fans. Fair enough, man. I think it's a movie we could talk about a lot more and that's you know this is already going to be one of our longer episodes in a while and that to me always speaks to the movie obviously in the first portion we have a lot to get through in terms of plot and dialogue and whatnot but i don't know for such a simple movie it seems like it can ignite such spirited discussion and spirited debate (laughs) so in closing i guess a lot of times when we start these with well it won this award and this award and this award it's because it's of general curiosity i don't think it's really of anyone's uh it's it's not in their blind spot to know that the titanic dominated the award season and really cleaned up at the oscars i I think it can't still have the record didn't return of the king set the record for most uh i think it might have what's titanic 11 so i think return of the king might be 14 okay so titanic won 11 it was nominated for 14 so good call on that look at julio look at the big brain on brett and (laughs) And then I think fucking Blah Blah Bland won more than that. Boo. So, yeah. So anyway, Titanic raked in best picture, best director, best art direction, best cinematography, best costume design. I mean, out of all of those, best costume design is probably the one most earnestly deserved. Uh, best film editing, best original dramatic score, best original song to the aforementioned My Heart Will Go On, best sound, best sound effects editing, best visual effects so really only two that mattered (laughs) (laughs) no uh no best actress or supporting actress uh what i read was it was if i remember the verbiage of it correctly of the little stat it was the movie to have the most nominations that did not win an acting award ouch sucks for you but (laughs) i mean billy zane wasn't going to take home that best supporting actor Oh, man, Julio, Titanic will come up time and time and time again until we choose not to continue doing this podcast. It's come up many (laughs) times before and we'll continue to do so. I love it. You're, I wouldn't say ambivalent. You're just kind of like, okay, it's a movie that happened, which is for some reason such a harder pill to swallow than you hating it. (laughs) Which, in a twisted way, brings me joy. I can't remember what I gave Almost Famous or uh, Halloween. I assume I gave them both A pluses, so I will give Titanic an A plus as well. It's again, I stick by what I said. It's one of the best movies ever made. You know that whole talk we had in our uh, Patreon Blues the Warmest Color episode of like, if I had to pick a hundred movies, it would be in there. I'm not quite sure Titanic would make that cut, but I still believe it's one of the best ever. So A plus. <laughs> Your love for it would make the cut, just not the movie itself. It'd be it'd come down to like, you know, one hundred would be Titanic and fucking Halloween four, and I would be like, <laughs> oh god, I don't know what to do. You would pick uh, Halloween four, but the dedication on the list would be for Titanic. <laughs> yes, exactly. I would have the the Blu-ray, like I would have it manufactured to have a in memoriam section to start it off <laughs> with that shot of uh, Leo looking down as she's lowered down in the boat and the flare goes off of her head. Uh, I think I'm going to go like straight three stars. <laughs> All right. Don't you're just trying that. to like make this worse. <laughs> like you're just thoughts of like, eh, 
<laughs> Dude, I, I before last night, I probably would have given it like two and a half because I, my memory of watching Titanic was just that it was it was kind of a chore. And uh, no, when God. I watched it, it was not a chore. It just wasn't like great. It was just it was just like all right, I watched the movie. So three three stars, and but you know three solid stars. I will say on the Blu-ray it has like just an absolute litany of behind the scene featurettes that I have absolutely no interest in watching. It's not a movie <laughs> <laughs> like Halloween Four. It's not a movie that I have any interest of knowing the entire backstory of or like how it was made. It's just kind of like yeah, it exists. It's great. All right, let's move on. You you don't want to see the featurette about the the cast and crew tripping balls? Like Halloween 4, you know, like, oh my god, uh, special unreleased footage of 12-year-old Daniel Harris talking about what it was like to work with Donald Pleasance. Fuck yeah. And then it's like, oh, you know, cutting room footage of Kate Winslet talking about her American accent. Move on. Don't care. (laughs) All right, in closing down, that takes us to perennial plugs. We, as always, want to thank the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks. They kick us off with Last Stand, Take Us Home of Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all Festive Years needs. Our logo was made by the man, the myth, the legend, Hans Rothgieser. You can check out all his work at mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-M-O-N-I-O-S dot P-E. Uh, he is obviously an artist. He also does comic books. He is a podcaster. He has four podcasts. Nación Combi, Marginal and Contante y Sonante are in Spanish and you can find them on any podcatcher and you can also listen to Living in Peru, his podcast in English on iVox uh, you can also find his work on our Patreon and on our upcoming merch which I promise we'll be talking a little bit more about that soon thank you Hans and as always we want to thank Zoe Perez for helping us out with our social media game Zoe, you do a great job and we appreciate what you do for us so Julio, what is on deck for the next episode? Alex, last year we had a segment on the live stream for The Cure. We set up some tiered goals and we're like, if we hit this much amount of money and donations, then we'll do this movie and so on. And we hit all our goals, which means that we have four movies that we committed to cover on this show. And next episode, we start uh, fulfilling that promise. We're going to be talking about Jade. The Linda Fiorentino, Chas Palminteri erotic thriller? I don't know. I've never seen it. Have you seen Jade, Alex? I have not. I remember it being a movie that my uncle and my dad watched when I was younger and I couldn't watch it with them. Uh, and I always think of uh, Seth Rogen's line in 40 Year Old Virgin where he says, Be David Caruso in Jade. And Steve oh. Carell goes, Okay, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I didn't know David Caruso was in it. That's amazing. All right, so Jade is on deck. That wraps up the Titanic epic, uh, very fitting of the film itself. So that will do it for us here on The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. Yeah.